everyone and welcome to the Against the Grain podcast where father and son talk faith and footy. I'm your host, Father Ben, a Catholic priest for the Archdiocese of Sydney, joined today by my spiritual son, Anthony, who once again has the giggles. Anthony, hello, how are you? Hello, everybody. (laughs) I'm going great. Wonderful. Good to have you. And joined today by a very special guest, Shane DeCuna, a seminarian for the Broken Bay Diocese on his way to the priesthood, and we're going to get into that very, very soon. Shane, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. It's an honour to be here. Good to have you, mate. Before we get into the guts of the show, I think it's important that we talk about a few announcements. We've got a lot of things coming up. Yes. First and foremost, Anthony and I and the Against the Grain team are proud sponsors of the Samaskan Dinner Dance, their fundraiser for all the good works that they do around the world. That's taking place on the 2nd of February, 2024. Make sure you check out all the socials for that, which we've been advertising. We also have something very special coming up tomorrow for everyone on very short notice. Mm. But we have a Eucharistic procession in Western Sydney for the first time in many, many years. It's titled, The King Walks in His Streets. And it's to commemorate the feast, the solemnity of Christ the King, And we're going to be starting at St. Rafa Maronite Church out there at Austral. And we'll be walking about a kilometre, not even, processing with hymns and rosary behind our Lord Jesus Christ in the streets. We'll be concluding at St. Anthony of Padua, Austral, with a vigil mass there. So it begins at 5 p.m. We'll march. The vigil mass will commence at 6 p.m. And then we'll have a good old-fashioned barbecue afterwards. So if you're not doing anything... On Saturday evening, which is tomorrow, we're inviting everyone out there with your families. It should be a great night. I think we're closing some streets. It'll be a safe procession. All sorts of good things happening there. So um, you're going to see all those details. Shane, you got to do this with us. Oh, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) You're going to see all these details in all of our socials and things. So (laughs) that's it. Sorry. Guests have to do it. You just got to follow along. (laughs) So that's all happening there. We encourage everyone to be there. Um, I'll be there. Are you going to be there? I'm putting Um, you on the spot. I will be away, but I will be there in spirit, praying for you all. Spiritual son will be there in spirit, but I will be there. Okay, wonderful. So come and say hello, and um, I'll start writing people's names on the list, uh, the ones that want Anthony's signature. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, not as appealing as the Samaskan dinner dance where I'll be there. (laughs) But Father Ben will be there. You get half. <laughs> um, so we're doing that. The king walks in his streets. That procession's coming up. That's tomorrow. So very short notice on this show's end. But if you can make it, that's out at Austral and the details will be in the socials. Finally, again, something very exciting, which we announced last week through the Sydney Catholic Youth Team Leader, Malad. The Purpose Conference on the 7th and 8th of December and you'll be able to see all of those details in what we're doing. Shane, well done. done. Very good. <laughs> so that's all going to be advertised. And we just want people to get out to that. So school students, you should have your teachers and all of your staff there registering you if you're doing a day trip. But then over 18s, 18s and over, you guys can be there for the afternoon evening session yeah. where there's going to be all sorts of good stuff happening. Just check out those videos we did last week. And now the most important part, like, subscribe, comment, follow across absolutely everything there is conceivable in the online universe, we're there, (laughs) except the places you shouldn't be. 
We are where we need to be. Nice. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> we are where we need to be. We're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, MySpace, Messenger. <laughs> we've got carrier pigeons. We've got St. Bernard's. We've got dolphins. We've got whales. It's all happening. We've got droves of donkeys. Someone was even talking about smoke signals until the the uh, the climate change activists got in our ears and said <laughs> we can't do that anymore. But look, we're trying our best. We're doing absolutely everything to get the message of Jesus Christ out to you all. So get amongst it. Get amongst it. That's enough clowning around, I think. I'm actually going to talk about something that we did and we rather enjoyed. And we oh, actually filmed... Yes with quite the social media personality today <laughs> or Catholic social media personality from the Diocese of Broken Bay, the same diocese that Shane comes from, mm. Father Sam French. This guy is absolutely blowing up on TikTok and Instagram with a lot of his short videos, very informative videos, but he uses great humor. He cuts them brilliantly. We at Against the Grain have done a collaboration with Father Sam today. So we had some fun um, shooting uh, you know, a, a few scenes and it was a really good time. So Father Sam, thank you for your support and your collaboration. And if you haven't heard of Father Sam, welcome to Earth. His details will be below. Follow Father Sam French. Nicely done again, man. Killing no worries. it. And, Getting used to um, <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Just for your your good old Catholic humor, you know, but also um, some good catechesis there as well. So follow Sa Father Sam French. Thank you, Father Sam. It was a great day, really was. Mm. And Father Sam's from the Diocese of Broken Bay. It's where our guest today is from. And yes. now we've done all of that. We want to talk to you a little bit, Shane. Awesome. Welcome to the show once again. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure is all ours, as they say. <laughs> but uh, Shane, we just want to get to know you mm. um, as, as with anyone, who you are. So do you want to just start off? Uh, by telling us about your family life, your upbringing. Mm. Yeah, sure. So I was brought up in a Catholic family. I have one younger sister who's three years younger than me. And faith was always part of our life. You know, Sunday mass was definitely something that my parents would never miss. So consequently, I never missed. Thanks be to God. Um, but very soon it became apparent that my true love was somewhere else. And football became a big part of my life from a very young age. My, both my parents, I would say, were very good to me in allowing me to you know, explore um, football without putting too much pressure on me, particularly my father. He, I remember one, one story about my father that I really remember was I wanted to get runners so that I could train um, just during the week, go for runs. And he said to me, Shane, you really want it you got to show me that you're going to run without them first so he made yeah he was pretty it was pretty hard but at the same time he didn't i never felt that he he pushed me into playing yeah it was a natural like so yeah that was really like the early days um, and slowly slowly you know, i started to get good at it and you know, that's when i guess the started taking off a bit more later on in the teenage years so yeah. you're one of these guys that calls soccer football <laughs> Because uh, <laughs> that was controversial on our yeah, previous show. I know, I know about this. And I listened to Tommy and I was like, oh, Tommy, what are you doing, mate? <laughs> <laughs> and I understand NSL days, National Soccer League, everyone's calling it soccer. But obviously I grew up a bit later than Tommy. And 
always football for me. Football. Um, and I would be pretty adamant on uh, on calling it football um, because, you know, my friends used to, you know, argue back against me. And I say, come on, man, you don't use your feet in rugby. It's rugby. You use your hands. There's a kick every now and then. Australia, AFL has a bit of a claim, but football, world game, mm. got to be called football. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. And you were I born in India, weren't you? Yeah, I was. So okay. I came. Do they call it football in India? It's a good question. I don't know. I assume so because they don't have rugby. Okay. It's really cricket and hockey, and then a little bit of football. But cricket and hockey are other two enough. sports. Yeah, fair enough. I love what your dad did by uh, by challenging you on actually running. Yeah. Before, so I'm that type of guy. I'll spend money on gym equipment and I'll never use it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a great that's a great thing I think, especially for a young man. Yeah. Show me you want it first. Prove to me you want it, and then I'll get it for you. So well done, Dad. Yeah, no, he's a, he's a good man. <laughs> I think one of the things that I, I realized that my parents really instilled in both me and my sister was valuing what we've been given. Now, obviously, come from India. It's not the richest country, and we weren't the richest family there. Um, neither were we, were we the poorest. But coming to Australia, where my parents are starting from scratch, my mum was, was doing really well in India in a, in a, I guess, a multinational company. And she's come here and given it all up. Dad's had to find a job that was far below his standard, um, what he had in India. And so consequently, from, from the very beginning, we felt it, Nadine and I and my sister, that you know, if, we're giving, if we're being given something, we, we, we need to value it. And you're not gonna be given it cheaply. And I, I really respect my parents for that, um, for allowing us to you know, really value things and not, not take things for granted. That's awesome. And did you watch soccer growing up? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I remember the 2002 World Cup. So I would have been six years old at the time. Um, that was my real first memory of watching soccer. That, that World Cup was held in South Korea and Japan. And I used to come home from school and dad would be watching um, the games. And you know, from, from then on, really, I, I used to really enjoy watching the game because dad watched it and you'd, we'd go out and play and you know, the love was, was there immediately. Did you support any team? So I have this nominal support, I would say. It's not very, <laughs> it's not very loyal. Like most of my teams actually, besides Australia, who I'll follow. Yeah. Um, most of my teams are nominal, rugby league included. Um, <laughs> so my nominal team for soccer is Chelsea. One of the first um, football kits that I got given, I think from my parents, was, was a Chelsea kit. Thanks. And um, Didier Drogba was, a, was on fire back then. Yeah, boy. Um, I loved him. <laughs> um, yeah, and then the, and then the for this show, obviously rugby league. Uh, Roosters was my nominal team. Oh, you were going. So I think Roosters <laughs> went back to back to back or three times in a row in the final uh, in the two thousands. He's like your expert. Later, yeah. like twenty eighteen, I think twenty eighteen nineteen or earlier. 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 So the the thing I remember very clearly in one of the finals, I think it was Ryan Cross. Ooh. The center. Yeah. He'd made a run down the side. They're playing the Panthers in the final. Yes. And Scott Scadler has come out of nowhere. He's second rower. And he's chased him down and taken him out. Yes, that's the famous And that was tackle. like a game-saving tackle. Yeah. That tackle's etched in my memory. I can, still, I can still remember it. Is that when you probably switched to Panthers? Or <laughs> <laughs> that's when I gave up on the Roosters. <laughs> <laughs> nah. Oh, anyway. that's awesome. Yeah, yeah that's, that's like the famous every, every year before the grand final, that tackle is shown. There you go. <laughs> is shown. Um, 
Oh, that's awesome. That's all. I'm a Chelsea supporter too. Oh, okay. Unfortunately. Um, yeah, it's a bit sad right now. Yeah, I, I think I'm a little bit more loyal though, so. Sure, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I, I can't say that I'm, times, I'm so. loyal. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. I just fell in love with um, watching beautiful football. I think that's, I got that from my dad as well. Yeah. Because dad's not, would never say that he supports any team. He just likes watching a good game. Fair. And uh, so the team that I fell in love with as a, like a teenage boy was... Uh, Barcelona, Pep Guardiola's Barcelona. Oh yeah, and their yeah. football was just just magnificent. Yeah, like the way that they'd the connect passing. with each other, the passing. Oh, and it's just sometimes it'd be meaningless passing, <laughs> but like the the rhythm that they have, it's just there's there's a real beauty, like an actual yes. beauty about it's it. It's like a symphony. Yeah, it's just hundred percent. Yeah, mellifluous. Here we go. That's my, <laughs> my mellifluous. That's my favorite word ever. <laughs> a flow. It's, just, it's mellifluous. Yeah. You know. <laughs> no, but that's that's on point, and um. And then when did you start playing soccer? Yeah, same time as the World Cup. Um, under sixes was my first under six. team, oh, wow. Quakers Hill Juniors in the West. And I was with them for five, five years, I think. Five years, yeah. And yeah. did you start off playing right back or? No, there was no real positions back then. Like under sixes <laughs> is everyone's like- Everyone's chasing oh, the ball. Everyone's oh, yeah. chasing the ball. <laughs> yeah. And our coach is screaming, you know, spread out, spread out. <laughs> we had these two guys in our team because there was no like selections in this. It's just like, you get a color. Like under six greens, maybe we were. So there's no, we got like great players and, you know, very average players <laughs> to put it lightly. <laughs> and we had these two kids. And during the game, when they got tired, they used to sit down on the floor and they start pulling out the grass. <laughs> the game's gone. <laughs> and these bikes are fully out of the grass. Uh, what? And I'm full into it, man. I'm like, I'm I've always been competitive. I'm looking at these guys like, what are you doing? And you're six years old. I'm six years old. Yeah. <laughs> That's gold. And yeah, you just you just learn to I just got over oh, it at the end. Like life, I'm just gonna try to carry this. Life team was myself. simpler back then. Yeah. <laughs> if you were just fed up, sit down and pick some grass out of the ground. <laughs> I hope for some reason, somehow, these two guys are watching this podcast. <laughs> well done. Well oh, done. Man. We need to get back to those times, I think. Oh, it was good fun. It was yeah. so much fun. Looks forward to it every weekend. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. That's awesome. And then um, what what was the point where you figured, because you would have played from under sixes all the way through, right? You, did yeah, you have any breaks right. in between? No breaks. No. no breaks. So when was the point where you thought, okay, this is actually something I can I can make my career yeah so after quakers hill i was 10 years old i got identified for like this the representative kind of football yeah that started under 11s um, and i played representative for till 13 um and it was when i was 14 i played for this um i guess it was an institute that football new south wales the governing body they they came up with it was called project 22 and the whole idea of Project 22 was to develop players to play in the World Cup in 2022. Um, wow. So I don't know if any of, any of the guys actually ended up playing in that World Cup, but I got identified for that. And that was the team to be in. Uh, that team that we had when I was under 14s, it was a quality team. A lot of, lot of top players at that time. And the football we were playing was just awesome for 14 year olds, um, great coach. And it was then playing in that team that I realized, yeah, I want to do this. But for me, the defining moment of like when I really like had the heart, the dream to want to play was 
when Australia qualified for the World Cup for the first time in like ages. It was 2005. Yeah. Uruguay versus Australia, Sydney Football Stadium. Yes. Game goes into penalties and John Aloisi, John Aloisi. puts it away. Oh. And the crowd just goes wild. I remember <laughs> up running up and down my house just screaming. <laughs> it was awesome. And from then onwards, you know, the dream was always to be a pro footballer. So 2006, I would have been 10 years old. So that's when like the real the dream was really instilled in my heart. But 14, when I made that team, when we started playing football, um, like good football, that's when I think, yeah, I could actually do this. So they've got their eyes on you this young and they've got that much of a vision that they're saying, you 14-year-olds are going to be in the World Cup at the age of what, 22? Yeah, so it would have been 10 so 12 years later, I oh. can't do the maths right now. I used no. to be good at maths. I can't, can't tell you. Can't <laughs> tell you anything right now. That's the amount of time. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. they've identified yeah. you this young. That's right, at 14 years old. Wow. That was the first time that Australian football, I think, really took seriously um, prepara- uh, preparing young footballers to be pros. Wow. Because we're lagging. We've always been lagging behind Europe for sure. Japan and Asia are by far the leaders in terms of youth development. And this was like the first time where they realized, okay, we need to actually prepare for the future if we're going to be competitive internationally. And, wow. and that young, that's clearly a lot of sacrifice that mum and dad are making, mm. I, I'm assuming, for training, for diet, making sure you're getting up to go and all that kind of thing, taxiing you around. <laughs> so my father was my taxi. Uh, yeah. al- always willing to drive. And then not only drive, you have to sit there and training goes for two hours and he'd listen to his music or he liked, sometimes he just like watching um, and then he used to drive me back. Wow. And this was by, by 14, it was four nights a week. So it was a big commitment on his end. And I think on, on his end as well, is he also made a sacrifice in not pursuing his own career. Um, something he only kind of did later on after you know, I could drive myself. But yeah, that was a big sacrifice on his part. Wow. Yeah. And all that sacrifice leads up to you actually representing the young Socceroos. Yeah. That's yeah, it's massive. It's, it's quite amazing how, how these little things have make add up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how was that? Or how did you find out that you were playing for the young Socceroos? And, and then how did that feel? <laughs> yeah, sure. So that's a, I would have been 18, I think. And it was, I was in year 12 at school. And I remember the previous season, this was like the summer season because the A-League plays in line with Europe. Yep. I was playing for the Western Sydney Wanderers in the youth team. And to be in that team already was huge for me. You're playing with you know, really quality players now with an, a, another, another good coach. And it was there where I was identified by um, Paul Ocon at the time, who was the young Socceroos coach. And we'd had a few camps, local camps, where they bring Australian-based players together. And the first, the first time that there was an opportunity to actually play it for Australia in a proper match was when the team was doing a tournament in Dubai. And I was unsure whether I'd get picked for this team. I was getting picked consistently for the training camps. But they don't, they're not, they don't really count as playing for Australia yet. Yeah. Um, you're just you know, being identified. And 
I, I knew that the selection was coming up and there were a few players in my position who they were considering, center back at the time. And I remember I was driving, I always catch the bus to school. It's a one hour trip to North Sydney boys from Cherry Brook. And mum called me and she said, we got an email. And she said, you're going. And oh, it was awesome. <laughs> what a feeling. Because I, I'm missing school for this as well. Year 12 though, so it's a little bit bittersweet because you know, parents always wanted me to do well academically. But what an awesome feeling to be able to, to, be able to represent your country, go overseas to play football. That was epic. Yeah. Mm. And all the while, are you still practicing your faith at this point? Ah, so yes and no, I guess. Yes, in, in that I'm going to Sunday Mass. Mm -hmm. I remember actually on one occasion where for the Western Sydney Wanderers, we had an away trip to Perth and that meant we missed the whole weekend. And I decided for some reason that I wasn't going to Delhi Mass at the time, but my parents had started going on and off. I said, okay, I'm going to go to Friday. Um, but I didn't go that Sunday. I didn't realize, I didn't really re realize, you know, priorities at this stage. Yep. And basically the no part is that football had become my religion. Football takes priority still go to church but you know this is where i how i define myself you know who, how i see myself as a footballer so football had become my religion by then so you're, you're um obviously like you mentioned it's it's becoming your your religion so that's your main priority yeah and all of that really gets you to your debut in the a-league mm. and so you've mentioned western sydney wanderers that's who you debuted for you were the if i'm not if i'm not wrong you were the first indian born player to debut for a debut in the A-League. At least that's what the commentator said. That's the what video. they tell me too. <laughs> I don't All know. Right, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is massive. So you, you've yeah. made history, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so you were in the Western Sydney Wanderers youth. Yeah. So how does that, how do you progress from the youth team then to the, to the, I guess, first grade or? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So at the time they, on, they only had a youth team and a first grade team. And the youth team was... I guess part-timers um, we'd play half the season half the year at the Wanderers and then the half other half of the year we go play for our MPL state league clubs and I was playing half the year at Western Sydney Wanderers in the youth team for about two three years and then the other the other half had played Blacktown City and so I would have been 19 when I made that debut and the, the way it kind of works is you've got to play well in the youth team. And the coach of the time for the A-League team was Tony Popovich. And he is, he's a hard man. <laughs> and not only do you have to play well, if you're not training well, you're not going to get picked. Even if you're playing well. And I always tended to play better at games than I did at training. Yeah. Um, so he did, he'd call us the youth team boys that were doing well in the games. He'd call them to first, first, first grade training. And that was a whole nother level. And to get up to pace with that was difficult at the beginning. Uh, but slowly, slowly, you know, started to get more comfortable. And it was towards the end of the season that I made the debut. It was at Gosford against the Mariners. And by that time in the league, we were doing badly. We were doing very poorly. So I think he was more, Tony Popovich was more inclined to give the youth team boys a run. Yeah. And yeah, I came on for probably five minutes. <laughs> and yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. But I'll be honest, at that time, it was a, it was a difficult period. 
because I was having a lot of success with the young Socceroos. I'd actually got called up to play in the Oli Roos, um, which wow. is the under 23 team. Yeah. And because there was an injury, I played really well. That, that was some of the best football I've ever played in my life. I went to China with this team and I just clicked. I didn't even, didn't train with them once. Just went on, played two 90 minute games and it was awesome. So I had a bit of a big head, I'll be honest. <laughs> and I'm, I'm coming back and I'm training with the youth team at the Wanderers. So all the Oli Roos boys, full-time pros, some of them playing in Europe. Mm. And I'm thinking, you know, I can mix it with these guys. Why don't I have a pro contract? Oh. So I'm telling my agent this. I have an agent to help me you know, work out. And I'm telling him this. And, it, and so he's, he's trying to, he's con speaking with the club, the Wanderers, trying to, you know, see what's going on with me. Because I want to leave. I've, I've had enough. Because uh, I think I'm, you know, I think I'm good. <laughs> and... Um, so yeah, this happened, this goes on for about three months and he puts me on. And then this is where the, I think the, the most exciting kind of juicy story is. <laughs> the next day or whenever the next training session was after that Mariners game, um, Tony pulls me into his office. And Tony Popovich is, for anyone who doesn't know, he's a massive man. He played center back, Croat, big. And just his, his face is kind of intimidating. He's a, he's, a, he's a nice enough guy, but he's, he's intimidating. <laughs> yeah. And his office is tiny, man. <laughs> so this guy's taking up this whole office and I'm in this tiny chair and he tells me, how did it feel on the weekend? I'm like, yeah, it was great, thanks. It was awesome. And then he just goes on to grill me. He says, your agent's been calling me. Why is he calling me telling my CEO that you need to be playing or that you need, to, you need a contract? Who do you think you are? And he just ripped into me for about 15 minutes. And I've never been called into his office. And so old? I don't know what to expect. How man. old are you at this time? I'm, I'm 19. 19 year old. I'm 19, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Wow. So I'm, I'm, like, I'm on the verge of tears, man. Because <laughs> I, I don't know how to deal with this. And, and he said, look, you need to work hard and prove yourself if you want to be a pro. And then he said, you can go now. Wow. So I, I, I probably said about two words at the beginning. And then it was just like 10 minutes of, of verbal barrage. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was intense. And then you have this flashback of your father saying, if you want runners, <laughs> prove to me that you can run. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's, it was like a little trauma. <laughs> <laughs> that's gone. And I went and spoke to some of the other boys about it who have a bit more experience. One of them said to me, when I go in there, I take my shield, my armor, my helmet, and I'm ready. <laughs> Could have told me before, man. <laughs> but what did that do for you? Like, did that, did that strike something in you? Or? Yeah, I mean, so I always feel like I want to prove myself. Yeah. So I, I, didn't, I didn't really cower. I maybe cowered a little bit verbally. But what was interesting is he actually, in the next, that very same training session, um, after that he, he spoke to me, he was very encouraging of me. I'm like, oh, what's going on here? <laughs> and he was like, he was speaking to me about, you know, position yourself here, very good, and so forth, so forth. And that whole kind of next week, um, he was very encouraging. And then he gave me uh, a starting debut, last game of the season. Um, and I played my only 90-minute game. And yeah, that, it was very strange. 
when the starting debut and that was really big yeah like finding out that i was starting um, i found out two hours before the game so I, like wow. the way it works at least at that time is on the on the friday before the weekend he'll put out the the squad and that squad is normally 16 players long for some reason this time the squad was like 22 players long and i was on the squad so I, I didn't really think much of it, especially after he, he'd spoken to me like that. I, yeah. I didn't think he was going to play me at all. And I remember walking to the ground, kind of ready to play. Not really, though. And the assistant coach at the time told me, just before the team meeting, he said, if I were you, I'd be the first one in there. And when he said that to me, it was like, I'm probably starting. Wow. <laughs> or he's going to give me an earful in front of the team. <laughs> 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 But I was starting, oh, yeah. So I started, wonderful. yeah. And that was I played pretty well. It wasn't the greatest game, but it was a good game. And I think that game um, probably earned me the pro contract. And when he when he gave me when we had the end of year meeting, where we were discussing you know what, what's going to happen next year. Your team players, because I was still a team player. It's only one year contracts. Yeah, can't can't do more than that. Um, he said he was happy with the way I responded to the talk. And he wanted to give me a contract. And that, I was over the moon. Um, yeah, I, I was ready to go find another club. Um, wow. Yeah, so, yeah. Wow. And did he say anything to you, like, right after the game? Or you didn't really hear much uh, he kind of meeting? He, he'd encouraged me throughout the game. But no, I, I wasn't sure okay. about what was going to happen. And I was, wow. I was ready to leave. Okay. Yeah. So you got a pro contract. Yeah. And yeah. so you go into next year, the next year, sorry, or the next season. Um, signed with the Wanderers. A-League team, yeah. Okay. And then did you, you didn't play any games no, from there? No, no. No. So probably a month after I signed the contract, they found a stress fracture in my back. Yeah. And that was my first serious injury. And that ruled me out for about three months initially. And the issue that I had was that it wasn't really healing well. So after three months, it still wasn't great. But by then, they told me, look, it just might not heal. And you just have to play. Wow. So I'm behind kind of the eight ball the whole season. And I don't, never really return to the standard required of an A-League player. Okay. So I'm playing in the U team and I'm doing all right. Um, but at this stage, not well enough to you know, renew the contract or even start breaking into the A-League team. Okay, so that injury's taken a toll. It's taken a bit body. of toll, yeah. Yeah, okay. When you say they discover the stress fracture, yeah, could you identify when that happened or d is that something that happens over time and it just gets worse? That's right, that's right. So this stress fracture wasn't like a like something in the foot where you can actually stress it in, in one occasion. It this was in the, the lumbar spine and generally that's a progressive overload injury. Okay. So this happened towards the... Um, when I was making the a, the a league, playing in the A league, I was already getting pain in my my well my glute area, and after I made the A league debut, I went to with the camp for the young Socceroos, and they were the ones that picked it up, um, and they sent me for scans and they found the stress fracture in the back. They told me, yeah, it's gonna be a while for you, but I was already feeling it slowly, slowly. Because that's obviously yeah. affecting explosiveness, strength. All that kind of thing. And then other areas of your body are taking the toll as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, it would have gone all the way down to your legs. Like, how are you even running? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, just, it's just a lot of pain in the back. And I'd, <laughs> I'd get 
massaged before games, um, tablets sometimes if necessary. Just try to push through. Because when you get an A-League opportunity, you just got to play. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I, maybe I could have rested. Who knows? But Providence. Mm. Yeah. And when football is your religion, mm. an injury like that affects it, mm. how did you respond at the time? Devastating. Absolutely devastating. You know, I, I, one of the things that I, I slowly started to realize during this time of you know, going these massive highs, like playing young Socceroos, um, making an A-League uh, debut, signing a professional contract, awesome things. Um, like you feel on top of the world. But then what happens is not many people see like the lows. Like, you know, we live in this culture where we're always talking about our achievements and not so much about the difficulties. Mm. In between the young Socceroos and making the A-League debut, I chose to miss my final HSE exams to go overseas to play in the under-19 Asian Championships. And that tournament was like the culmination of the young Socceroos um, time. And the tournament also served as qualifiers for the under-20 World Cup, which was happening the following year. So this is in my year 12 year. And I've I've already missed a lot of school because we've traveled the world with this team. And I've, so I've gone over and our team's really good. We've had a great kind of few tournaments prior and we're expected to qualify. So it's, it was absolutely devastating when we don't even get out of the group. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I came back after that massive low. And you go back on a high with the Oli Roos team with the A-League debut and then you're back on a low the injury, stress fracture. But throughout this time, you know, my happiness is so dependent upon soccer that I'm going through this you know, tumultuous kind of period of, you know, with the emotions. And I'm starting to realize that this is not healthy. And there's this desire burning for something more. And this is where I think good family good friends, God's providence was instrumental in helping me, you know, search th through this time for you know, real meaning, a, a source of happiness that's not dependent upon how good you are at something, you know? Who are the people in your life when you're going through this? It's almost like the Holy Spirit speaks through them mm. and they're giving you words of encouragement. Can you speak to that in any way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously my family, um, you know, they can see my mood every day and they're doing their best to just, you know, support me and, and keep me calm, you know, try put things in perspective just at a human level. And they were very good to me and they've always been good to me. Outside my family, I had a, had a few friends that were definitely instrumental. Uh, probably the, the most important friend his name's Nathan. He's still my I say, best friend today. And when I was 19, Nathan was, was discerning his vocation. And, and, you know, me looking up to him, he's two years old, older than myself, and I wanted to copy him. And Nathan, uh, Nathan kind of introduced me to the person of Christ in a real way. So I guess my conception of God as a high schooler, where football is my religion, is God, he exists, but he's this distant judge. 
that's not really interested in my choices. He rewards me when I behave well and he punishes me when I, when I don't. And I only go to him when I need something like playing well in a game or an exam, or someone's sick. Those are my three things. Um, and Nathan kind of helped challenge that conception of God. You know, life of the sacraments, confession. Ah, confession was huge for me. Mm. Probably went to confession a total of three times up or four times up until I was 19. Yeah. Wow. And Nathan kind of shook me on that one. Uh, yeah. So when you've got, so this young man, Nathan, is so pivotal, I think, in your maturing, mm. going through this stage of your life. And he's a young man that's taking discernment of vocation seriously. Yeah. Now that not might not be a phrase that yeah. our beautiful internet people at home sure. are very <laughs> familiar with. What does it mean to discern one's vocation? Sure, sure. Well, I guess I'll speak to the word vocation first. A vocation, I mean, it comes from this Latin word vocare, which means to call. So in the Catholic sense, a vocation is a calling from God. And it's a calling which defines your life. It gives trajectory to your life, like a purpose. And the first kind of calling which we all share is this calling to holiness. It's a call to be like Christ. And this is what's known as the universal vocation. And you know, in pursuing this universal vocation, your particular vocation is kind of comes into clarity. And for Nathan, he was kind of discerning this particular vocation. He was kind of already trying to live this universal vocation to holiness. And he was discerning this particular vocation to, to priesthood. So I guess to discern means to distinguish between the different types of particular vocations. The most common ones being priesthood, religious life, marriage, or single life. And Nathan was seriously you know, trying to discern what is God calling him to do? And because I trusted Nathan, because I trusted my family, you know, I took a chance on, on following him. You know, did I really believe that Jesus was my Lord and Savior, that God was my father? Probably not. Probably not. I, I kind of liken it to, you know, Peter. You know, when Peter's in the boat and Luke's gospel and he's with his brother Andrew and Jesus is teaching the crowds and he finishes teaching and then uh, Jesus says to Peter, put out into the deep. Let down your nets for a catch. And Peter's, Peter's just come, come back from a hard day's fishing and he's caught nothing. Like who's this carpenter telling him how to fish, right? But Peter says, no, he must have seen something in this teacher. And he pulls out, he goes out into the deep and he witnesses this great miracle. I was kind of like Peter at that time. You know, I kind of know that Jesus, don't really, not really sure what he can do for me or yeah. what he's done for people. But because you trust your mates, trust your family, okay, let's, let's give them a try. And because you're suffering, ultimately I'm suffering throughout all this. You, know, you, you want to find meaning. And so I put out into the deep. And thank God I did because it was, it was awesome. Yeah. And you mentioned that you had, you went to confession for probably the fifth time or something in your, yeah. <laughs> in your life, but it's it would have right. been, yeah. Like, um, I know, I know with myself, I'd been to confession a handful of times since my first reconciliation, but mm. none were really, um, I guess you could say a proper, uh, confession of, sure. of the way that you're meant to, um, really prepare for it and things like that. Was that your first, 
sort of proper one where you've you've done an examination of conscience and things like that and really prepared for it would you say that was yeah i i think that'd yeah. be definitely the first time that i actually really took it seriously i think my my going to confession coincided with my belief in the real presence of jesus in the eucharist wow um nathan kind of explained to me that you know you can't receive jesus when your soul's not ready and this scared me this shook me when like, i'm going to receive god and i've i'm not really prepared to do it and he kind of he, he was really he was he was really zealous at the time and thanks god i always tell him like it was awesome thank i'm really thankful that you were and i kind of became a little bit pedantic about you know making sure I, okay i gotta go to confession now um, but yeah, that's how, that's how it started. Yeah. It's almost disproportionate sometimes the way people view confession and the Eucharist. It's like the, the two sacraments go hand in hand. Yeah. Yet the Eucharist is something that even in my short time as a priest, I've realized people sometimes just presume they have a right and then they just go. Mm-hmm. But the, the Eucharist is a great gift. It's a privilege. And as we read in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he who eats and drinks the body and blood of our Lord without discerning first, eats and drinks damnation on themselves. Mm, pretty strong words. Very strong words. Yeah. So how do we tell this to a, a faith-filled community and get them really not so much to be fearful, but to embrace God's mercy, which is so beautiful. Yeah. yeah embrace that mercy and then start to see what the Eucharist can do in your life? Yeah, yeah it's a tough well, question. It's, yeah. a, it's a really tough... I think one of the things I've, in my experience, is when you start to really believe that our Lord loves you and that he's died for you and that in the midst of your suffering, he is there, then you're willing to do stuff for him. Like You're willing to go to confession. You're willing to try to live a life knowing that you are loved that you're not defined by your sins, you're not defined by your job or your talents or the amount of Instagram followers you have, um, how pretty you look, whatever it might be. I think the moment you really start to believe that he is your father and you are his child, things change. And I think one of the th things now I've spoken, to, we've spoken a lot in the seminary about this is, you know, how do we evangelize this generation? Guess what you're getting at, right, Father? Um, and this generation struggles with many things. And I think one of the biggest things they struggle with is identity mm. and knowing who they are. Because they're constantly you know, being told by celebrities, by social media, yeah. that you know, they're defined by you know, what they do or how they look and so forth. And so they go searching for these things and then they become very insecure, naturally. I think this is where the gospel can really be piercing for our generation in that it, it provides a sense of security that you know, you're loved no matter what. And that's, that changed my life and it's changed millions of lives before me. It's nothing new. So um, I think that's get them to believe you're loved in the midst of their difficulties, they'll go to confession. And so this is what you're going through when you're you got your stress fracture in your back mm. and you're riding the wave of emotion and being basically defined by your love of football. 
Where's that turning point for you? I guess that the turning point happened slowly um, through the midst of all this. But one of the things that changed it for me big time was prayer. So Nathan had a spiritual director. So I'm like, oh, I better get a spiritual director if I'm going <laughs> to take this seriously. <laughs> Copycat. Um, like the little brother, I guess. Um, and he, I remember going to him for the first time and he asked me, you know, what's your prayer life like, Shane? And by this stage, you know, of my reversion, I'm, I'm, I'm become a little bit zealous. And I'm trying to pray the rosary. Um, I'm, go, I'm trying to go to mass during the week. I didn't know you could go to mass during the week for a long time. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm starting to take the faith a bit more seriously. So I'm, I'm rattling off all these devotions to him. The divine mercy, rosary, mass. Mass is more than devotion, but you, you get what I'm saying. And he says, what's your prayer life, Shane? What's your prayer life like, Shane? He asked me the question again, and I'm a bit stunned. I'm like, look, man, look what, look what I'm doing. <laughs> Is this not enough? <laughs> Are you not entertained? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, basically, what he told me after asking me the question and, and realizing my stunned response was that prayer is a conversation. And... Part of conversation is that you listen. And I'm used to talking to God and asking him for things. I'm not used to listening. I'm not used to the silence. Yeah. So one thing my first spiritual director taught me, Father Al, God bless him, um, is that you need to be silent with our Lord. And coming back to this question of a turning point, is in the midst of my challenges and suffering and trying to figure out who I am, where my value is, is I started to see our Lord on the cross saying, Shane, I am with you. I'm with you in your suffering. I know what it's like. And through your suffering, I will make you strong. And yeah, that was powerful. And this happened over time, right? Uh, the, the way I tell like, some of the kids when I'm trying to get them to pray in this manner, if you know, talking to God, listening to him, is like, yeah. I tell them, at the beginning, it's awkward. And for me, what I used to do, the athlete, I used to set my timer for five minutes and I used to just try to be silent. I'm like, God, speak to me. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing happened. Like nothing happened. Nothing like audible happened at least. But slowly, slowly, you know, our Lord was teaching me how to listen and revealing himself to me in the midst of the silence and allowing me to perceive how he's working in my life you know, outside that prayer time. And yeah, I see him there with me on the cross and it's, it's, it's one of the beautiful things, most beautiful things you can experience. You're not there, alone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, are, there are so many questions that are popping up in my yeah, mind sure. right now. <laughs> so I'm just going to like fire them at you yeah, if that's go, all go. right. Um, the first is, so we, had, uh, we have our, a, teens, uh, a teens group mm. um, at, at our parish at St. Felix. And um, we had an encounter night where we have adoration and confession available. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just doing a really short, quick reflection um, before we went in for them. And um, it was a bit of a last minute thing, but I, I really wanted to push the importance of silence. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I tried to do that. Um, but <laughs> what would you say? Uh, and this is, this is part of the thing that I struggle with trying to explain to, to others. In, in, 
our in our lives where we try and fill our silence with so many things like as soon as there's a bit of silence we just we try and fill it with something mm -hmm. you know music movies whatever how important is silence not just when you're sitting in the presence mm. of the blessed sacrament but in life in general yeah very important i think what what you're getting at is that you need to have a culture of silence yes yeah a culture of maybe contemplation is the word i'd use a contemplative outlook towards life even in the midst of you know an active life like a life in the world um, so the more we can kind of cultivate this contemplative outlook towards life the easier it'll be when you come to pray you know your heart's already disposed to hearing what our lord wants to say oh, wow. so for example you know if you're by yourself like before bed or you're waiting at a bus stop for your bus or you're in the car now you don't have to explicitly be praying but maybe you know, turn the radio off or don't look at your phone experience the experience what it's like just to be and that doesn't necessarily mean you know i need to be praying or thinking about our lord in this in this in a very explicit way but it means that i am all right with silence i'm all right with just reality as it is um, i think that's one of the great travesties i see with kids is that they don't play like just go outside <laughs> and just enjoy running around doing nothing i think that's so essential for us to be able to you know, be disposed to receiving reality um as opposed to you know constantly trying to create this alternate reality with for example technology yeah um and the more we, we get into this culture of, you know, a contemplative outlook towards life, when we come to sit in that holy hour, you know, it's not going to be as awkward. It's not going to be as difficult to you know, manage it for one hour or 30 minutes, whatever it might be. Yeah. Okay. That's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that literally is like the perfect <laughs> sort of response. Thank you for that. Cause, um, in, uh, in this, like, you know, we're, where our goal is really to um, to try and let others know um, the, you know, I don't know, just to try and get them to improve their lives. And in a, like I'm improving mine. Just yeah, by that's the how it works, isn't it? Conversations yeah. we have and things like that. So um, honestly, that, that response alone is incredible for me. So thank you. Um, then you also mentioned um, the crucifix. The oh. crucifix is like, uh, I've heard so many... Yeah. So many people say it's too confronting. Um, uh, even even non-believers will say, well, why are you looking at a dead guy? <laughs> like sort yeah, of thing, you know. Yeah. But the toughest thing is why, or, or the question I have for you really, and, and it's a tough thing for people to understand, is why is the crucifix our central mm. icon? Like why is that what we focus on so much in our faith? Yeah. Well, I think the crucifix is what makes this life meaningful which gives it direction and purpose now we, we live in a fallen world right because of original sin and you know we've, we've our relationship with god is fractured and our relationship with others is fractured so consequently there's always going to be suffering this is just a given like, so what the crucifix does what what jesus's death does is it makes it sheds a pathway forward in the midst of the fallen world. Wow. And 
we need to constantly, you know, see this crucifix every day to remind us, you know, there is a way forward. Um, you know, God has not abandoned us. And this is what he's done for us. He's died for us. This is how much he loves us. And if we're going to go forward, we need to be constantly reminded of this. I think one of the beauties that I know, I'm sure you as well, Father Ben, absolutely love is, is that Catholicism um, in, its, in its kind of mode of expression fits our human nature. You know, we're body and soul. And one thing that separates us a lot in, from Protestants is that we have this fascination and love for the material, for the physical. And this is why we have statues, why we have, you know, crucifixes. Is that tangible reminders of God? Mm. Um, it's very hard for us if we're constantly forgetting who God is mm. um, to be reminded in this abstract kind of purely immaterial way. Yes, yes, yeah. And it's I think it's even prevalent in our culture today, and has been probably for decades, where we've seen when you move away from the cross you start to see health and wealth gospel. Mm. You start to see the absence of suffering and only talk about, you know, the happy stuff, the good stuff. Yeah. But this comes across in a lot of my preaching and this is something you're speaking to as well. That is not our human condition. Mm. So for uh, let me be clear here, I'm not talking about walking around and moping and being miserable that yeah. there's suffering in the world. Definitely No, not. Jesus helps us make sense of that suffering mm. and he points us in the direction of how that can be redeeming. Mm. And when we lose sight of that and only ever talk about, you know, the health and wealth stuff, which plays a part in it, but when we only, when we isolate that and only talk about that, how are we helping the person suffering in the pews? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, that's um, like I remember, I'm going to mention him again, Deacon Harold. I remember yeah. him saying in a, in a um, talk that he was saying a homily and um, he was uh, having a little bit of a, not, not necessarily a rant. It was, it was like a, a just a, he was mentioning something that he thinks is, uh, could be improved. Mm. And it was that, um, he's heard a, whole, a lot of homilies that are just like he, what he calls Barney homilies where they're right. just, I love you, you love me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and, that, and that's a beautiful message because the, cause the yeah. love of God is, is the, the basis of our, and it's the foundation of our faith, which is beautiful, but you need some, you need something to, to hit a little bit harder sometimes. Yeah. And there was a woman in there, a pregnant, um, a young girl actually who was pregnant and she was um, being pressured by her, uh, by her boyfriend or ex-boyfriend at the time or something to um, to get an abortion mm. and this is where this might relate a little bit more uh, sorry might relate back to your injury is there's this point in Catholics baptized Catholics um, where they if they've fallen away when they're lost and they've hit rock bottom it's like this default setting like on a computer <laughs> where you just reset and what you know is just go to church just ask God, you know, like what to do. So this young girl walked into to mass. She didn't know um, there was mass happening and she just sat at the back and she heard this homily and it was a pro-life homily from, from Deacon Harold. And anyway, long story short, she had the baby and, you know, they helped her through it and things like that. Thanks be to God. Yeah, yeah thanks be to God, which is, which is so beautiful. Um, 
and again to bring it back to your injury like you've had this this sort of reset i guess um where you're looking a little bit deeper now and it must have been like it, it is so easy for us in times of suffering or when our focus has been on this thing like on football for so long mm. and now this setback has happened it's so easy for us to say well I, why do i have to go through this what god why have you done this to me um, essentially we can we can even be like the pharisees and and say uh, we'll come down from the cross like that's essentially what we're saying like you know if you're god why do we have to suffer why did you have to suffer sort of thing um it would have been easy for you to to have said that and to have blamed god what what was it what, what like was there was there an openness in in yourself or was it would you just say it was providence or something <laughs> something what was it that made you instead of blame god it made you more open to well this has meaning mm. well look to be honest i did blame him at times yeah i think one of the, the things that I, when i look back at my experience of prayer there was, there was a lot of shouting like questioning why god why me like I, I'm definitely not perfect, um, and particularly so back then. Yeah. When you're, you're going through this tumultuous time, and you, you don't really have a, a a lens of faith to see things, but you're developing this lens, and in developing it, you, you're going through all these all these strange kind of experiences of getting angry with God, and you know, questioning Him, not His existence, but why why me. So th there was there were times where I was prone to like a victim mentality, and and I think when I look at scripture, particularly uh, coming back to Peter, this guy does the same thing. <laughs> He's very honest with our Lord, and I love Peter for that. Mm. Um, he questions him. I've counted at least six times where he questions him. <laughs> like, this guy's bold, <laughs> and I think that resonates with with me with Peter is that. He's not afraid to say what he truly thinks. Like you are the Christ. And then immediately after, don't go to the cross. Yeah. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> I, he gets it wrong. And I think I was getting it wrong many times with my outlook. But I think maybe the thing that allowed me to, to open up to your question, um, you know, what allows me to move forward is, is our Lord being patient with me and working with me. And I think I allowed, to some extent, I was willing to, you know, um, for him to work with me and be open to the fact that, you know, there is meaning to the suffering or there is there is some sort of reason as to why this is happening and not being too, you know, sad and, and despondent about the situation. And I think slowly, slowly, coming, like coming back to your point about, you know, the cross isn't, embracing the cross isn't mean walking around with a, your head down. You know, embracing the cross... It means walking your head with your head high. Like, there's some joy in this because there's purpose. There's beauty in it because you're being drawn to our Lord. And it's it's awesome. Um, and then the more you start to experience that and the more your heart kind of opens, like, yeah, I want to go down this path. And it's all right if it's going to be a bit difficult. Mm. I think one of the things that I've realized that I wish I got told a bit more, mainly in school and or at church, like in homilies, like you mentioned, is that the Christian life's a bit of a battle. Like St. Paul talks about putting on the armor of God. I mean, that excites me. <laughs> like I want to go into a war. Like I think particularly for young men, like you make it like, as you mentioned, like Barney homilies, lovey-dovey fairy stuff. Yeah. Who wants that? You want to, you, 
people want to give their lives in a radical way. And we see that with the religious orders that are flourishing. It's all the traditional kind of radical living that's attracting young people. And you know, that's what started to attract me. Mm. Like realizing, okay, you're going to have to pull your socks up. It's, it's not in a way that you're, you're doing it by yourself. No, you, God's working through you through, throughout yes. all of this, but you have to cooperate in a real way. Yes. You can't expect him just to work magic tricks for you. Mm. Um, yeah. And one distinction there, when we use the term radical, mm. we're referring to it in our sense as we are countercultural. Yes. And we're doing the things that the culture would either laugh at or say that's too hard to do. We're not using radical in the sense that um, we're extremist, um, fundamentalists that, you know, we preach hate. And uh, it's important to make that distinction because when you say radical, there is something exciting about that. Mm. There is something attractive about that. And the proof is in the pudding. Look at all of the young men and women, women especially, that are leaving our shores in Australia and they're going overseas to religious orders because they are loving the contemplative life. What it means to be a a spouse to Jesus Christ. Mm. That is one of the most exciting things when we talk about radical. Um, And it's important that we make that because um, people oftentimes think... The opposite. Sure. Yeah. And that's, um, I think that's what we tend to miss in a lot of our churches today is that radicalism, like, and not, not the extremism, but that radicalism is people are going there to get something different. They're sick of what they're getting without God. And so they're going to God to get something different. Amen. And then when they go to church, a lot of the time they hear the same thing that they're hearing outside. And so we're offering nothing different because the church is trying to get with the times and, you know, um, and, and it just, it doesn't work that way. So that's why people like, um, and I'm not saying um, he's uh, necessarily a great example, but people like Andrew Tate, even Jordan Peterson, or even on the other side, who I think is an even better example is Lila Rose. Um, these, these people offer an alternative to what society is telling them. And that's why so many people are drawn to them. So if the church can do that, and uh, with, sorry, if certain individuals within the church can do that a little yes. bit better because the church does it does it well, yeah. <laughs> um, mm. then uh, we'd I think we'd have a, a much, um, I guess, bigger uh, practicing church. I mm. think people want that difference. And you know what? We had it first. Yeah, we had the message first. Yes. We had this radical call to love first and Jesus perfected all of that. He's, he's the perfect person. When he walked this earth, he was the original radical. Yeah. He was telling people, no, don't live this way. I can show you something so much better. And it made sense, which is why people followed him. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It didn't go against their human nature. He was revealing to them their true selves. Yes. And so when we as a church walk away from that, no wonder people like Andrew Tate become popular because 5% of his message inspires young men, but the other 95% is garbage. Yes, It's like, but we have the 100% attractive (laughs) message that there is and it's in the form of Jesus. Follow him and your life will be happy. Your life will Mm. be peaceful in here. 
Yes. And you'll know how to make sense of what's going on in your own life. Exactly. So you start to embrace this mm. in, that, in that season where you've got your first contract, professional contract. You've got this stress fracture and you're starting to embrace this. So let's go back to that particular time in your life sure. yeah. and let us yeah. know what goes on from there. Yeah, so slowly, slowly, as I said, it's not like, a, like an overnight conversion or reversion is probably the better word. Slowly, slowly, my heart starts to, to, to go over to our Lord. Um, it's like he's slowly chipping away at it, yeah. this, <laughs> this rock of a heart that it is. And you know, I start to pray more. I'm starting to see my spiritual director you know, once a month. And one of the things that I think I realized now upon reflection is that my success in football one thing it taught me out of the many things is that you have to go all in if you want to make it. Wow. If it's if, if you want to do something and you're going to make it worthwhile, don't do it half-hearted. So I think I was naturally disposed to apply the same kind of mentality to the faith. And that's what I kind of did. And my heart kind of opened up to the possibility that God could be calling me to do something. At this stage, probably 20 years old, I, w I wouldn't say it was the priesthood straight away, but I felt this urge to want to, to give my, my life to God. I, I remember my 20th birthday. Um, I went to mass during the day and it was at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Parramatta, just 12.30 mass, you know, don't have to wake up early. <laughs> um, and I just remember sitting there after, after mass and this great desire to, to want to do something great with my life came to me. Obviously, you know, it's our Lord speaking. Couldn't, didn't really realize at the time. But yeah, this is what's happening in this season of my life. Um, the heart slowly being moved. So what happens to your contract and your uh, obligations with Western Sydney? Yeah. yeah, well, the contract just got terminated. It was only one year. So it didn't, didn't get terminated. It just expired. And they told me in the meeting that, I hadn't reached the standard required to renew the contract and they were happy for me to continue in the youth team for a couple of months. And that's what I did. And I went back to playing in the state league called Blacktown city. Mm. Um, so that was actually a big relief for me to go back to playing in the state league um, in the MPL because there was a lot of pressure at the Wanderers and I wasn't meeting the standard. And I think also the relief came upon me because I'm slowly, slowly but surely starting to not identify myself as the soccer player. Mm. Yeah. You know, coming back to this identity crisis that we're going through. And so in the eyes of the world, that can almost look like a regression. Yeah. And it career. was in the world. Yeah. In the world's eyes. Yeah. And so are people that are in your circles, are they talking to you about what are you doing? So much potential, like come back. Train hard, come back harder. Yeah, I mean, are you getting that in your ear at any stage? Yeah, at this stage, you know, it wasn't so much people telling me you, know, you need to come back because they knew that I had not made the the standard. They're just saying, you know, just keep working, Shane. You've got the potential to go back. Um, they're, they're being quite supportive, actually, and so that's what I do. I, I work hard. Um, I get a trial at Melbourne City. Go spend three weeks in Melbourne, trialing with this team. They told me they were going to sign me. But when I did the medical, the stress fracture is still showing. 
and wow. they're not too keen on taking a risk on me. I'm not, I'm not that good to take a risk. Um, so the verbal kind of agreement kind of fell apart and I came back and a trial at Wellington for a week, um, Wellington Phoenix, I played horribly. So he, he let me go. He was really nice. His name, Ernie Merrick. He was really far different to Tony Popovich in his, <laughs> in his, in his kind of style. So I go back and I, I just start working hard again. Um, I put on weight because I'm a center back, but for those who can see the camera, I'm very skinny. Um, so I put on 10 kgs, um, just doing really pull-ups and squats. And I went back to play again for Blacktown City as a 21-year-old the following season. And our team's really good at this stage. Um, a lot of players who have played in the A-League like myself um, desire to win. And I start off fantastically in this season. And at this stage, even though my faith is starting to pick up, I still want to pursue football. So it hasn't, I haven't kind of just thrown football away. Mm. Um, I still want to pursue it. And uh, eight weeks in, the season's going fantastic. You know, I'm, I'm playing really well each week. A team's coming second, I think. We're doing really well as a team. And I think, yeah, my hopes are good for a trial at the end of this season, this winter season, because, you know, A-League summer. And this is when second major injury happens, playing in a state league, uh, in a cup game midweek on a, like a paddock of a field. We normally play on decent fields in the NPL. <laughs> and it was, it was raining that day. And I thought, you know, it's raining. I better wear medals. You know, we wear, in soccer, you can either wear, um, I guess, plastic studs or, or metal studs. And you wear metal studs when the ground's soft. So your okay. grippers, you don't slip. Yeah. And it's particularly important for a defender because you don't want to slip at the crucial moment. And so I chose to wear medals. And I remember just playing the game and it was going well. Uh, we're playing against a team below us because it's a cup game. And we're crushing them. And I just remember going for a tackle and I, I went to push off my left leg and my foot got stuck in the ground. The, the metal studs gripped too hard. And my knee went but my foot didn't go with it. So, snap. Oh. And I knew straight away what had happened. I never experienced it in my life before, but I knew straight away that my ACL has been ruptured. Oh. And the ACL is the anterior cruciate ligament, the worst injury you can do. You'd rather break your leg than, than do an ACL, mainly because of the recovery time. Oh, ACL's got a very slow blood supply. So it's a one year general recovery. So this is crushing oh, yeah. because I'm playing really well and I'm enjoying football. There's not much pressure. Um, and I'm like, oh, why did this happen? I remember the next day and I'd spoken to my parents. They were very nice. And I remember the next day just feeling a bit at peace. Mm. Well, I think a lot of pressure came off me of wanting to go back to the A-League. That's not possible now. I know straight away. I remember a lot of peace coming over me and it was very different to when I was told I had a stress fracture in my back two years prior. I think by this point, my relationship with our Lord is you know, getting stronger and I know he's there in the midst of the suffering and I'm like, okay, Lord, this must be happening for a reason. I'm not going to panic. Let's just go with it. Wow. And you know, that was that was really a tangible kind of grace looking back on it because it should have 
it would have crushed me as a 19 year old yeah yeah. But it didn't crush me this time. Yeah. What a contrast to the first injury. Exactly. And the way you're dealing with it, internalizing it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Okay. And so at 21, yeah. you have this horrible injury. Mm-hmm. And then is this when you start to take a little bit seriously the calling to the priesthood? Yeah. So this is where I... Um, I was actually, uh, at the time, I was really interested in, in a girl. And so this is before the injury, even the ACL injury. I, I, was, I was speaking to my spiritual director, you know, what do I do? I, I, I think the priesthood could be cool, but I like this girl. What do I do? And he was just really practical about it. Thanks be to God. He didn't like over-spiritualize it and like say, Shane, go do 10 holy hours, figure it out. <laughs> He just said, ask her out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> I don't, that's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> um, so I did. You know, this was my first time that I actually had the courage to go out. I'm, I'm a very shy man. I don't know if it's coming across. But I'm, I'm very kind of quiet. Timid at times, particularly um, as a teenager. Uh, not much confidence because, you know, soccer is defining me. And when it's bad apart kind of mm. confidence just goes with it yeah so this is this new is territory a, yeah this is new territory <laughs> to be able to you know step out and take a risk and i did and i asked her actually asked her out after 12 30 mass at st patrick's cathedral <laughs> yeah. and she was shocked she had no idea um i thought i was very obvious but anyway <laughs> she, she was shocked <laughs> What are you That's laughing? That's so typical of us guys. Like we're like, <laughs> we're like, I can't make this any more obvious. And the girls are like, does he like me? Like, I have no idea. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, she was shocked. And she said, I'm going to need some time to think about it. Okay, no worries. We left and we actually were going to the same place after. And it was just painful not knowing. Yeah, yeah there's a possibility or not. <laughs> and... So two weeks later, two weeks later of agony, <laughs> she finally got back to me and she said, I don't think I'm ready. Wow. <laughs> that was crushing. That was crushing. It crushed me for about a couple of days. But then I felt good because I, you know, I took a risk. Yep. And that was new for me. And that, that gave me a bit of confidence. Um, anyway, th- I guess the long story is that eventually she started to, the, the feeling started to reciprocate on her part. And we started to speak a bit about it. And like, we kind of came to this position where like, let's give it a try. So we did, we did, we went on a few dates. And, and this was a really tricky situation for me because I was doing something I do not recommend. I was seriously discerning the priesthood ah. while going out with her. Yep. And I, I wanted both, I wanted my options opened. Yep. A very kind of millennial thing to do, um, <laughs> even as a Catholic, right? To, to want your options opened. Yeah. So while I was dating her and things weren't going great, I guess there it was, it was going, yeah, I guess just put it honestly, it wasn't going too good, but I wanted them to, I wanted it to go well. Yeah. Um, we, well, I went on a silent retreat specifically for the priesthood, discerning the priesthood. It was at Malgoa. And I remember going on this retreat. It's my first time, um, first time silent, 
as well. And it was it was confronting. And there were heaps of guys there and, and a lot of them look really holy. Some of them seemed a bit weird. <laughs> so I was a bit That's pretty typical. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was a bit on edge on this retreat. Because Did I you tell her it was a boys' weekend away or something. <laughs> no, no, no. She knew. Oh, good. And she good. actually wanted me to go. Nice. So I think she was giving me a few hints there. <laughs> um, she actually wanted me to go. So I go, okay, I'll, I'm gonna go. And so I'm, I'm the ACL's ruptured by this stage. It's like three months in. And I go to this retreat, and I, and it's silence. So I'm confronted by the silence, like we were talking about before. I can't sit in silence. So I've, I've. Um, I'm still learning, I guess, to sit in silence. Yep. I get given a book. You might know it, To Save a Thousand Souls. Mm. It's a sp- sp- book that just details the day-to-day life of a priest. Wow. And it's so well-written, so well-written. And I'm just reading these pages going, wow, wow. The priest is there. He's, he's relaying this, this encounter he had with his family where he's consoling them because their son has died. Then he relays another encounter where he hears the confession of someone just before their death. And it's just, and I'm silent, right, during this retreat. So these things are hitting me and I can't run away from them. Mm. And I remember one point, I just started crying. I couldn't tell you why at the time. Like, I guess I could because it's just hitting me like the beauty of what a priest does. But because I wanted this relationship to work out, I buried it. I remember coming back and people asking me, you know, how was it? I was like, yeah, it was good. It was good. (laughs) Uh, I didn't tell anyone really. I didn't even think, it took me a while to tell my spiritual director what happened. And slowly, slowly the relationship just, we realized we were at different stages and we decided to, to end it. And that was a bit difficult. Yeah, that was very difficult actually for me personally. And I remember probably maybe two months after the the relationship had ended, probably three or four months after the retreat, going to mass at my local parish at St. Agathas and coming home and just experiencing the same kind of feeling, this this deep peace. Mm. No audible voices, Mm. but at the thought of the priesthood. I remember that I was sitting in bed I was lying in bed and I just, it was like, it was, there was actually a tangible physical kind of element to it. Mm. Um, and I remember welcoming at that time and just feeling so much joy at the thought, oh, I could be a priest. Let me ask you a question. Sure. That, that difficulty when you break up. Yeah. Okay. Knowing what you've experienced to that point, was that difficult also, and hindsight's always a beautiful thing, yeah. was that difficult also because now you had to confront this thing called the priesthood that has been lingering? A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but after we stopped seeing each other, I remember my heart being a little bit cold towards that, any kind of possibility of vocation, a particular vocation, mm. marriage or priesthood. And so, yeah. God had to really shake me <laughs> to get me to seriously consider again that he could be, I could be called to be a priest. Mm. I think one of the biggest things that was difficult for me, because I always just want to get married growing up. Like even as like a teenager who was in love with football, marriage was always the thing. Yeah. 
I've, I've always I've always been a romantic, and some to some sense I still am romantic in the sense of you know wanting to to give your life to someone, mm. um, or give your life to things like even football. Mm. So that was kind of firmly in my heart when it came to marriage as well. So for me to consider that God might be telling me, Shane, you'll be a priest. And not only will you be, I'm not calling you to be a priest, but you might, you'll be happy as well. Mm. That was difficult to, to confront. Um, but when I finally like let it go on this night, I think, um, wow. You know, the, the, the romanticism now is applying to the priesthood. And yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. It's funny because I think our default positions naturally, because we are relational people, is marriage. Mm. And we grow up thinking it. Yeah. And we grow up thinking, well, that's the only option. I'm either going to get married or I'm not. But even for those that don't, they don't even consider that it might be a different vocation they're being called to. And so I think we we owe our our families now our friends our young people we owe them i think that clarity so that no this is what vocation is and there are many of them and go down the path of what god is calling you to be because i think it's just an expectation yes for most it probably will be marriage mm. but what a shame to miss out on what god might calling you to be and as you've just um uh, as you've just admitted there will be joy and peace and happiness that comes mm. by doing the thing that is odd to a lot of people. Yeah, that's it's right. Pretty special. It's, yeah, it's awesome. Well, from a layperson's perspective, <laughs> I'm still a layperson too. Just to clarify, yes, true. Yeah, this, this is true. This is true. Like, I get but, what you're saying there. But looking at a um, looking at a priest and someone who is. Uh, studying to become a priest or mm. still um, God willing going to be a priest mm. we can easily look at you and say well you've given up so much mm. and obviously when we say that we think you know a marriage and biological children um, pe some people might even say you're giving up um, uh, you know some pleasure as well in, t in terms of um, uh, that of the flesh you know sure and so uh what would you say to to someone who says well you're you're giving up so much like are you are you just giving things up or what are you getting yeah well if you put it in the context of marriage if you're giving up marriage like fulton sheen has this wonderful explanation that the married man and the priest are very similar mm. because the married man gives up every single woman bar one and the priest just gives up gives up, I don't think this is the greatest language, but we'll go with it, um, gives up every other, every single woman. This is only one woman in the difference here. Um, wow. <laughs> but I think uh, I think we need to reframe it as not so much giving up. And I think maybe you can speak to this more than I can, uh, Father, that you're receiving so, so much. Yes. That a priest or a religious sister in a unique way enters into the spousal relationship with God and with his church. Amen. I think one of the most beautiful images that we have of the priesthood is our Lord and his church, a bridegroom and a bride. Yes. And 
at every ordination of a priest, there is a marriage occurring between the priest and the church. Yes. And there's this nuptial kind of beauty that's going on. And this is why celibacy, I think, is so important. Yes. Because there's only, they can only have fruitfulness in a marriage if there's exclusivity between yes. the spouses. Amen. Amen. So yeah, maybe you I, can speak about this in a well, more awesome. real way. In yeah. a very funny way, I was trying to explain this to year three students the other day. <laughs> and they said, Father Ben, why aren't you married? And I said, I am. Mm. And their eyes lit up. What? <laughs> why haven't we seen your wife? <laughs> and then I said, I'm married to the church. And then they looked around and they're like, what? So this building. <laughs> <laughs> and there's just that real beautiful exchange in any relationship. And I think as a priest, that exchange is properly manifest by being in the person of Christ. So when I offer the sacrifice of the mass, when I hear confession, when I'm anointing at the bedside of a dying person, when I'm engaged, and I like to use this terminology, I'm not exclusive to one, I'm exclusive to all. Wow, that's beautiful. It's like my life exists now yeah. for the church and the church is not the four walls that those year, beautiful year three children thought I was talking about. The church is all of you. The church is me being there for elderly people, for married couples, for children, for single people, for anyone. It's just I'm laying my life down for the church and the church has that very broad um, demographic of people at all walks of life. And so celibacy makes sense when you're living your priesthood the way Christ lived his life. Mm. Because I'll tell you what, just on a very natural human level, I've only been ordained for just over a year now, but I look forward to nothing more at the end of a day than just a hot shower and my bed because you're just on the go all the time. Yeah. And, and it's a beautiful thing. People entrust the most intimate part of their lives to you. Mm. And so that's an intimacy that I could never share with just one person. Yeah. It's for all. And I think that's that, that imagery of Christ and the church. And Father, you mentioned celibacy. In a world where we're told to just feed our pleasures, if we have this desire, just go and fulfill it. What, what does celibacy, not just in the priesthood, but what does celibacy in, in general uh, look like and offer us for those outside of marriage? And, and in the priesthood, I guess. Yeah, as well. So I consider celibacy to be a great gift. I consider it a great gift. To live in a celibate state means that clearly I will not be married to a woman and have a biological family. But it, it means so much more than that too. The, the expression of my sexuality is lived in a much deeper way. The expression of my sexuality, my drive, my energy is to be life-giving, not in a physically sexual way, but life-giving in that I give my entire life to each and every person and from that there is fruit. Yes. And that's what that means and everyone is called to live that in their own particular way in life. 
God made us in his image and likeness. So we are not on the level of the animals. We have an intellect. We have a will. We have an ability to choose. And so if I were to walk around miserable as a priest and look at all of these families and say, oh, I wish I had that, in a very simple way, the grass is always going to be greener on the other side. And I think we alluded to this earlier. When you look at the crucifix, when I look at the crucifix, it reminds me that the grass is perfectly green where I'm standing. It reminds me of what I am supposed to do in the person of Christ each and every day, and that's to lay my life down. So that's what, in a nutshell, I believe celibacy to be. Yeah, I think you've explained it really well in that celibacy is not something where you give up something. You're actually receiving everything. Mm. And receiving everything, you can lay down your life in a total and sacrificial way. Yes. Wow. That's Amen. what makes it awesome. Amen. Amen. And uh, I'm just, to be honest, these, these questions are just popping up and, and I'm just... <laughs> a lot of them are, are things that I've thought in the past, some even that I still wonder. Um, and so um, just uh, one, one more, unless something else pops up, <laughs> one more question would be, I think a, a misconception is that when you become a priest, we believe that Catholics believe that they just lose this natural sense of... Um, uh, attraction or beauty oh. or uh, things like that so you you guys will just never find another woman attractive ever again or something you know there's there's that sort of misconception mm. um and i guess you could um probably uh, you could probably say the same for marriage though it's not not really um not people don't point at married people and say well they've lost their natural attraction sort of thing it's more so pointed at the priesthood mm-hmm. uh what would you say to that have, have uh, do you guys just become divinely <laughs> sort of like? <laughs> I can honestly unnatural. say the answer is no. <laughs> so my I? spiritual director once told me, you will lose your attraction for women when they put you six foot under. <laughs> <laughs> On point. That's it. I mean, we're yeah. still human beings at the end of the day. As much as there's blood pumping through my veins, there will always be a natural inclination to what is good and true and beautiful. Mm. And God has made, he's made us all beautiful. And so, yes, there's an attraction there. But once again, I've made a choice. Shane, you've made a choice. You know, there are two good things there in marriage and priesthood. But we can make a choice. And that's where your discernment comes in. Yeah, I think one of the things I'd probably speak about, I agree with Father, just by the way, just <laughs> so it's clear, that the attraction is still there. Yeah. But I think that is, attraction is so essential to actually living out mm. the priesthood. Mm. Yeah. Uh, now, JP too has done wonders for the church. John Paul II, That's Saint right. John Paul II, Saint for those John Paul II. watching at home. Yeah. <laughs> Saint John Paul II has done wonders for the church in articulating you know, what it means to be a sexual being. And one of the tragedies that our culture has inherited from the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s is that they reduced sex to some sort of physical pleasure. Or they reduced eros to this, you know, just lustful desire. Yeah. But eros actually impels us in the traditional sense, the platonic sense, impels us to the other, either to neighbor 
or to the transcendent, which is God. And consequently, this sexual desire conceived in this way is actually so beautiful in allowing someone, even in a celibate state, to be able to live fruitfully. And I think we, as a church, need to kind of reclaim you know, what it means to be a sexual being. And we've been given absolutely everything and more yes. in St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. And it's a bit sad when I hear, you know, centers of the JP2 Institute's closing because it's what young people need to hear. Yes, um, yes, amen. It's very funny, I think parallel to what we're talking about, one of the most common questions that I get and one of, I think, the criticisms that are thrown at the church in the West is um, why the celibate state? Like we'd have a lot more priests if you just allowed them to marry, mm. if you allowed them to. Yeah. And we have the benefit now of hindsight and many, many studies. We've seen churches around the world, not, not the Catholic Roman Catholic Church, but we've seen churches around a lot of the Protestant denominations have allowed now married clergy. Funnily enough, their seminaries are not bursting at the seams. It's going the other way, actually. It's going the other way. They're actually losing interest. The people aren't joining their houses of formation to become pastors and leaders of their own religious communities. So clearly allowing people to get married is not the answer. And then... Luckily for us here in Australia, we have a very healthy seminary at the moment. We had our biggest intake only this year of mm. young men. I think it was about 17 yeah, thereabouts so. yeah. in total. Oh, that's, been a good. that's the largest number we've had in a very long time. Yeah. And so when people make that argument, like things would just be better if you relax the rule on this yeah, or if yeah. you – it clearly is not. So I think what we have to do – I think it's our responsibility and for those that want to take these questions seriously is start to push back a little bit on people that have been making these arguments for 20 years because they clearly have no merit anymore and now we've got the proof <laughs> to tell them that there is no merit to this. Yeah. But it seems to be a question I'm always asked and I respond, look, if Pope Francis took the discipline of celibacy away and allowed me to get married tomorrow, I wouldn't do it. Because the church is my bride mm. and I can't be at loggerheads with, you know, that tension of an actual family and then looking after the church. I don't think I'll be able to do that properly. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's hard enough giving 100% to one vocation. Then if you had both, like if you had two, like marriage and priesthood, to, to be giving 100% of yourself to both is firstly impossible but even if it wasn't it would just be hard enough that it would practically be impossible anyway <laughs> um. now i think it's important that we make a another distinction here because yeah. we have many eastern brothers yes. <laughs> um that are engaged in the married priesthood yes um and it's permitted and it's allowed and that goes back a long way in tradition and history yeah whereby a lot of the married state clergy um, actually had the support of larger communities. So they're not looking or, ru or running parishes on their own. Um, they can share the workload a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a good thing. 
Um, but what we're discussing here is in no way a plight on on their state no, of life. No, no. And they do a lot of beautiful work too, that those um, currently as well. So, yeah, definitely, definitely a good decision. Good to do that. Otherwise, yeah. the comment section will just explode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, yes, right. please explode. Go for <laughs> it. Like, comment, follow, subscribe, yes. do all that good stuff. Just don't misunderstand us. And don't <laughs> misunderstand us. Amen. Amen. Um, uh, just to be clear, yes. Pope Francis has actually been quite firm on not relaxing the discipline of celibacy in the Western Latin Rite Church. And I think he understands the reasons for the, which we've kind of been discussing of the fruitfulness of the mm -hmm. celibate state. So that's really encouraging, I think, for, for the Western Latin Rite Church. Yeah, wonderful. I remember um, I, I had gone to a discernment retreat at the seminary as well. Yes, I remember seeing is, you there, yes, actually. Yeah, yeah, which is where I met you, um, I believe, for the first time. Possibly, yeah. And um, anyway, uh, so that was something I was um, considering as well and discerning. And I remember when I was there, um, it might have been Father Apelli, but it could have been could have been someone else in their in their talk to us. He was saying it's so brave of you guys just to just to be here discerning the priesthood with all the the persecution and things that's happening around the world. To even be considering this is such a brave thing. Um, and it had been around the time of the scandal that, you know, the um, sexual abuse and things like that, uh, where it was still sort of fresh. I guess it still is in a, in a way. But anyway, um, did that, was that a deterrent? Like, I remember thinking that that wasn't even something I considered in discerning the priesthood. Mm. But he was like, he was saying it's so brave. And I was like, oh, okay, sure. Like, I'll, I'll take it. But <laughs> was that ever a deterrent for you, that, that persecution or anything like that? No, no, I had a very similar response to you. It didn't really strike me as something that was, that I was doing. Yeah. Because I think when you, maybe you were experiencing this the same, is that when you're falling in love with our Lord and you're seeing the great plan that he has for you kind of slowly being revealed to you, you just want to do it. <laughs> and it's it's like madly falling in love with someone. You don't really care what other people think. Yes. Yeah. Um, wow, yeah. You just do it. And I think that in itself is very encouraging for, I think, young people who, who are hopefully considering things like this mm. because this, these issues that the, ch like the church is facing from the world, they become secondary. Yeah. And they become like dust almost because our Lord's love is, is so powerful yes. that it, it kind of just vanquishes this darkness Yes. Um, that we're, we're living in. Yeah. I think also what's happened with clergy sexual abuse and all that kind of thing, that's purified the church in a way as well. For sure. Yeah. I think what we're finding, um, not just in priesthood, but in religious orders, uh, religious sisters, for example, we're getting people walking into these houses of formation now with direct and clear intention. It's like it, it's it's not a cop out any. Uh, maybe it was in the past. I don't know. Maybe to escape conscription or you know to to because my life kind of didn't turn out the way I wanted to. I'm you know following this path. Mm. Mm. But now it's not the case anymore. Now you're getting intentional. Yeah, men and women are getting really intentional about all of this. And the Archbishop of Sydney, Anthony Fisher, mentioned this at one of the recent ordinations 
he's he was saying that young men now that are coming out of the seminary um, are some of the most balanced, well-rounded, experienced, and that's a tribute to the formation, mm. the thorough formation that they receive, but also because it's almost like they've fought for it a little bit. It's like even in your story now, look at what you've gone through to get to this point. Um, the attraction of being in professional sports, of of signing contracts, of being in the limelight. But you've fought for it and you've listened to that inner voice. You've given yeah. you've given Christ a chance. You opened your heart to him. That's not to say men and women in the past haven't done that. But I think we definitely come across times now where priesthood isn't viewed the way it used to be viewed. Yeah. And yeah. so we're getting young men that are saying, okay, if I do this, my back's going to be up against a wall now in this culture. Mm. We're going to be presenting a very countercultural message. Mm. We're going to challenge a lot of people and there's going to be, it's on. Yeah. It's on. You know, it's, it's just so exciting. You just, yeah. you, you're just you talking like that. They're like, I'm getting g <laughs> <laughs> um, One of the things that it is so attractive about the priesthood in um, contemporary context is that we're going into a war and like young men want to go into a war. We've seen this throughout all of history. Like they want to do something that's worthwhile where they're going to have to give everything. And you want to, there's a, there's a natural desire. I think, I don't think just, I think this is the church's tradition thinks for the human heart to want to sacrifice itself or the other. Yeah. This is probably coming back to what we were speaking about, you know, What's his name? Andrew Tate. Yeah. You know, we want, we naturally are inclined to doing something radical, um, mm. something which is, you know, noble. And this is why, you know, lowering the standards, accommodating to the world, all this stuff is not going to work. Mm. Because it's going against the natural inclination of the heart. Yes. And like you've also mentioned, like the Catholic Church has always been blessed because we've had the Protestant churches do all the trial and error for us. Yeah. And we just have to look, but yeah. sometimes we don't want to look. Yes. Um, but before we even have to look at sociological evidence, like we just need to look at the heart. Yes. And like coming back to your, your point about, which I think is true, um, young men being young priests, being more balanced, I guess, in this generation. I think that's also a product of, Again, St. John Paul II, recognizing the importance of you know, human formation, you know, reordering and, and ordering our, our sexuality. He changed the way you know, we do seminary formation in many, many respects with his seminal document, Pastoris Darbo Verbis, yes. um, which is on the formation of priests. And he talks about all these human things. And in getting those human things right, you know, understanding what it's like to be human, you form good priests. Mm. Um, and I think, thanks be to God, um, the Seminary of the Good Shepherd in Sydney is on that path. Yes. Um, yeah. When we stay firm in what the church has given us, I think we're on solid ground. Amen. Now, yes. this quote has been attributed to many people in history, but one of those people, the Venerable Fulton Sheen, Legend. he says, when you... Wedge yourself to the spirit of a particular age, you will end up a widow in the next. Wow. Oh. He's prophetic, isn't he? 
And it's a very powerful quote in that if we find ourselves accommodating of the currents and the fashions of particular movements, if those movements are not grounded in truth, which they're not, when eventually everyone gets over it, you don't have a leg to stand on. Mm. Oh my goodness. And he said that beautifully. If you wed yourself to the spirit of a particular age, you will end up a widow in the next. And that is why there is just such safety and security in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Which the church has a responsibility to safeguard mm. and to promote. Oh my goodness. That's yeah, a mic drop. I think <laughs> one of maybe the hesitancies that you know, some people maybe within the church experience in promoting or really preaching the gospel in its fullness is there's this, this latent kind of fear that it's all too much. It's all, it's all too soon, maybe. Maybe some will make the argument that let's, let's do the nice stuff first and then we'll get to the difficult stuff later. Mm. You know, the more hard stuff. And... Once again, I think no wrong. Yeah, wrong because you know our hearts are naturally inclined towards this. We want to be radical in the way we've been discussing yes. the word. You know, we want to love. We want to be loved. And if we kind of dumb down or avoid certain parts of the gospel, I think in a sense what we're doing is we're dumbing down or decreasing maybe the level of our Lord's love for us. Yes, and. In a world where you know, we need young people, we need everyone really to truly believe that they're loved, you know, why dumb down things? Mm. And I think if we can explain that or get people maybe within the church or even outside to start seeing this, this reality, they'll be even more open because I can understand this legitimate fear of you know, going too hard too early or avoiding certain things. There's good intentions behind that. Yes. I and mean, we want to acknowledge that. But you also, we also want to you know, think about this in an intellectual and human way. Mm. Um, we can't just be too worried too much about feelings. That's right. Mm. Yeah, I think that's one of the big, big issues I see is we, we're too concerned with, with feelings, even with our, our Christian life. You know? Yeah, I, I mentioned that I, I got a deep feeling of you know, God calling me to be a priest. Um, but that, that's, for the most part of my seminary formation, even after that, that feeling of being drawn deeply to the desire of the priesthood, it's not there. Mm. And that's all right. That's all right. You know? I think at the heart of love is not so much, you know, having good feelings, but mm. this choice to, to, to sacrifice. There it is, the yeah. choice. The yes. choice. Uh, there is a choice that we have to make. Yeah, that's my little rant. Well, look, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Amen. You know, you hear this so often now in the current climate. Oh, we, we fell out of love. Oh. Mm. And so, you know, yeah. it was right that we just amicably part ways. <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry, love is a choice. Mm. And if you are living your wedding vows each and every day, then you will be there. Yeah. Till death do you part. Yeah. Now, there are some people that go through some absolutely horrible things. Yeah. And there's some individuals, it ultimately comes down to selfishness. Yeah. Um, which love can have no part in. 
But when one individual starts to become selfish, then that other party suffers grievously. Mm. And that's always a terrible thing. So whenever we talk about these topics, I'm always mindful that there are people out there that are hurting and that they've gone through some terrible things themselves and they've done nothing wrong. Mm. They've tried to love as best they can. Mm. But then there's always, and this is a human condition, there's always a proclivity to selfishness, what we call concupiscence, that proclivity to sin, to to really miss the mark of what is good true and beautiful yeah and our human nature has the ability to go down that path and so we're not in any way you know saying you've got to be in things that are going to absolutely annihilate your mental physical spiritual health but when we're talking about this love i mean jesus was was challenged nearly at every point in his ministry yeah, look at the way he responds to Peter. Yeah. You know, get behind me, Satan. I must be about the will of my Father. Let yeah. this cup pass from me, but not my will. Your will be done, Lord. Yeah. So all the time, it's a choice. It's a choice. He's moving forward. And if we are true disciples of Christ, we're moving forward with him, not on our own, with each other, but most importantly, with his help. We've got to pick up that cross and follow him. Mm. Well, that's the downfall of any vocation would be selfish. Oh, and it stems from pride, but it's selfishness. It's that, um, you know, like I, I've once heard um, people always say that communication, like, you know, if, if you communicate better in a relationship, then that, that'll solve your problems. And like I can communicate to Sarah what I, what I want, for a whole day and she can do the same to me but if we're just selfish and we don't want to sacrifice our own will or sacrifice ourselves or anything for each other then we could communicate for days and nothing's going to get solved <laughs> nothing's going to get solved um mm. and and i think that uh, like a, the, the classic example or the, the one i always use is our lady right not for selfishness but for if anyone had a right to just be proud and selfish, it would be Our Lady. Like, can you imagine getting told that you're going to give birth to God? <laughs> like, she had the opportunity to just walk around and go, hello, mother of God, right? <laughs> <You know>? like, <laughs> like, that. that's that's massive. Like, as if you wouldn't just go, <laughs> just go and announce it, you know, like, look at me. He chose me sort of thing. Anyway, um, uh, like, I, I say that in a bit of a funny way, but, but sh- she like could have easily just done that. Um, but no, her response is, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Mm. Like servant, uh, service, like her, her whole mission is rooted in selfless service and sacrifice. And humility. And humility. And that's exactly why she was chosen. Mm. Amen. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So she's our perfect example. She is indeed. Our lady. So Shane, tell us, when does this get to the point where you're thinking, I'm going to join the seminary? <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, it was that night of you know really welcoming this desire that I think our Lord has placed in my heart from the beginning. Um, I, I remember, I think the first person I probably really told 
outside my spiritual director, I'm pretty sure I told him pretty early now because I was excited. Mm. That was Nathan again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, because by this stage, Nathan Na- Nathan's no longer discerning the priesthood. He, he's he's now married, actually. He's got a, a wonderful little little girl. Hey, congratulations, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Ivy and Anna. Um, it didn't take me too long to try to commit to the fact that you know, God, God's probably calling to me, calling me to this, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow it. I just didn't know where. So my spiritual director, Father Al, he was a Franciscan, conventional Franciscan at Kellyville, and I spent a week with him. Um, didn't really experience anything significant enough for me to want to pursue that more with the Franciscans, um, and by this stage, I was going to retreats with the archdiocese more regularly, um, the ones with Father Rapelli, and I'd visited the seminary. And my prayers, you know, continuing, is getting stronger. I'm spending more time in meditation each day, you know, Christian meditation. I'm just with our Lord in the church or in a chapel. And I remember very clearly sitting in one of our churches in Broken Bay, Our Lady Help of Christians in Epping, and just realizing the church in Broken Bay needs priests. And one of the, the earliest quotes I heard from St. Mary of the Cross, MacKillop, our, our only Australian saint, our wonderful saint, she said, never see a need without doing anything about it, without doing something about it. And that really inspired me to, to want to just, yeah, okay, if I'm being called here, I'll do it. I was really looking at this time to go abroad because I wanted to leave, leave behind my previous life, like with all my friends, football friends in particular. You know, I was a little bit scared, even ashamed maybe, to want to live publicly in this way for Christ in Sydney or in the Diocese of Broken Bay. I wanted to go be a missionary. Mm. Romantic, right? Mm. Um, but really scared um, of what does this mean now for me, Um, my reputation, (laughs) small thing that it was, but obviously young man, ego's big, still is. Um, (laughs) You know, what does this mean? I've got to be public about my faith now. I can't hide. I've got to tell people that I'm no longer pursuing soccer. Football. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) slipped. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, that was a hurdle for me. And I remember finally working up the courage to go tell my coach at Blacktown City that I wasn't coming back the next season. And this is the reason. And I did it in person. Um, And he was really supportive, actually. Um, He just said, yeah, okay. All right, it's, it's a bit strange. <laughs> I didn't expect this from you. I was hoping for you to come back. Um, you know, you're an important part of this team. He's a really good bloke, actually. Um, but yeah, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. I'd worked up in my mind how this conversation was going to go like, in all these different ways. He's going to laugh at me or something. <laughs> and to be honest, some of my school friends have kind of done that. Um, and I've copped a lot of stuff from from people at school, public school, particularly with the sexual abuse crisis. Um, but it's not that bad. And when you see that our Lord has been spat on and what he's gone through, 
kind of get a bit of consolation in that. That a little bit of persecution. Now, I, I must be clear here, I've faced very little. Very, very little. But a little bit's not bad. It's all right. It's not the end of the world. So the football community finds out. Mm. Your friends at school. How's family taking all of this when you let yeah, them Yeah, okay. So the family mm. probably is one of the most interesting. <laughs> because I told my parents pretty early on, they've known now for about a year and a half that I'm... I'm I'm taking this particular vocation seriously. Yep. But they didn't expect that I'd come home one day and say, <laughs> I'm going to join the seminary. So at this stage, I haven't got a degree yet because I've, I've been studying part-time since leaving high school. So I'm studying an exercise and sports science degree. I'm about halfway through. And I firmly resolve that I'm not finishing it. What's the point? And I've told them this and... I think what upon upon reflection now hindsight what shocked them was that I've I've just changed trajectories real quick and I'm really firm about it. Yeah. And like any good parents, they just want to make sure that their child is making the right decision. So for them it, it was a lot to take. They weren't against me um, pursuing this. They were hesitant upon my you know, speed because I was ready to enter next year. But for the, the following year, this is like six months, halfway through the year of um, 2018. I want to enter the next year. And, and they're like, well, are you sure this is what you want to do? Like, obviously for my father it would have been tough, but particularly because he's given his whole life to, give, to help me make it in football. Mm. And then for me to turn around and say to him, my dad actually want to enter the seminary. I remember I, I told out of all my family, I had dinner with my dad and my, my sister and my mom were overseas. And I remember telling him and he was a little bit shocked. He wasn't, he wasn't completely apprehensive noticeably, but I know for him, it, it would have been difficult to, for him to swallow that. You know, I've, I'm throwing away in some respect mm. his sacrifices um, for me. So it took a while for my parents, particularly, to come to terms with that I'm, I'm, I'm resolved. Mm. And I think the more they've seen my resolve, but more so the fact that I'm happy, my parents now, five years later, it didn't even take five years. It took legitimately two years, two or three years, to, for them to really just say, wow, he's actually happy. He's made a good decision. Thanks be to God. My dad now is, is probably most happiest out of anyone um, yes. that I'm on this path. Yes. Yeah. I think that speaks to the core of probably parental concern. Yeah, and love. Um, yeah. Is I just want to make sure that if my son or daughter is doing something, that they're happy and they're mm. at peace doing it. But I think it takes a bit of a twist when it's something like this because everyone can do a career change. Yeah. Everyone can, you know, defer uni and do something else or whatever. Yeah. But you're actually talking about now giving your life to God in the most radical of ways that probably people aren't used to. Mm. I remember the same thing happening in my circles. Yeah, interesting. It's just not a thing that people did. And a lot of people looked at me as if it was like, are you sure you want to give up a good paying job, your degree at university? 
your ability to be in a relationship and start a family. You're going to give all that up to do this. And that oftentimes comes from a place of we don't know anything else. There's like, isn't that what people who don't have an education or don't have any hope, isn't that what they do as like just a last resort? Mm. Which can sometimes be the mentality a lot of people have. Whenever I would tell someone, oh, six or seven years in the seminary, oh, you could have been a doctor. Yeah, I said doctor of soul, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Divine physician. (laughs) But that's the thing. It's like, it's always, oh, look at what you could have achieved in the material world Mm. if you put that much time into something. But hold on a second. What we're doing is eternal, has eternal consequences. So even for your dad, I understand that because it's like, look at all the sacrifice he made for you to pursue a football career and now you don't want that anymore. So that requires adjustment on his end Mm. and thank God they've come around because they see you happy. They see you pursuing what you are being called to by God. That's a beautiful thing. It is, yeah. And I think those sacrifices that your dad made in hindsight, which we've mentioned a couple of times, he can see, and and I'm not, I don't want to put words in his mouth or anything, or maybe he's, he might not even be at this point, but those sacrifices that he thought he was making for you to be a footballer, he actually made in the long run for you to be a priest. And so that was God working through him to say, well, this is the, this is the path I want your son to take mm. to become a priest. And so in his mind, it was for you to be a footballer. But this whole time, God was going, no, no, <laughs> you think he's going to be a footballer and these, this is what you have to do. Yeah. But actually, this is what you have to do f- for him to answer my call yeah. to the priesthood. I think one of the things that I've realized also, just for me, watching my parents, not only my dad, but also my mum, yeah. just make constant sacrifices. Mm. It was helping me realize the beauty of sacrifice. Yes. Wow. Um, like my parents have always put my family first, me and my sister. They put each other first. And even though maybe they haven't you know, been able to teach me like the faith, maybe how if the way I wanted to receive it, because, you know, they've grown up in a bit of a cultural Catholicism. Yeah. Um, they were showing me. Mm. This is what it means to lay down your life. And I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. Wow. And this makes even more profound now. When you were a little boy, your father said to you, Shane, if you want runners, show me you want to run. Yes. Mm. And now look, look at what you've... If you want to be a priest, look at what you've done in the lead up to all of this, you started to engage in an intimate prayer life with our Lord. Your life started to just slowly shift in that direction. So you started running. Yeah. And then you went to the seminary. You got the runners. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's a beautiful analogy. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's very, it's very (laughs) profound when you think about it. It's like all of these things are building up to this point in your life. So you've entered seminary. How's it been for you? How many years have you been in seminary now? So I'm coming to the end of my fifth year. Okay. How's that experience been for you? Because there is a difference between discerning outside of the seminary and then discerning within the seminary. 
for those watching at home or listening, when you enter the seminary, they don't close the door, lock it and throw away the key. <laughs> yeah, Your freedom is respected at all times. That's right. So how's that been for you? It's been a really beautiful journey. I think like you mentioned, one of the, the first things that you kind of get told is that you are discerning your vocation here. You're discerning your vocation now, particularly to the priesthood. And we're going to give you everything and we're going to help you do this. And that's really reassuring. Um, that you are free to leave when you want. And that you're free to just trust these people who have God as place, these priests and lay people, to help you, you know, realize what he's doing in your life. One thing I'll say about the seminary that I found very, very helpful, edifying, and also allows, which allows me to you know, grow in holiness, is the community. Mm. I think more than actually the formators, and they th I think they'd agree with me on this one. I think they have in times past. It's your brothers that form you. And I, t I say the word brothers in a real sense, not, I don't say that word lightly. You know, we live together, we pray together, eat together, play sport together, study together, we do things together. And you know, there's this beautiful thing in Proverbs which says, you know, iron sharpens iron. Mm. And the seminary community is a cross at times, it's not all rosy. You know, things are tough sometimes, you know, when you're living with guys, you think, you know, we're all little holy saints with halos around <laughs> our head. <laughs> Um, walking around, everything's going to be, you know, amicable. And that's just not the case. And it, it really shouldn't be the case because the seminary challenges you um, to grow and deal with wounds, deal with your vices, yeah. because you're not perfect. And the community of the seminarians you live with, and, you know, you, you were one of them when I entered, and I'm so thankful for that, particularly your year group, actually. Like Father Sam, part of that year group, um, you get a witness, you know, where you're going, looking at these older guys. And they take you under your wing sometimes and they'll they'll guide you. They'll they'll impart their knowledge and their wisdom. Um, which is just awesome. Yeah. And not always perfectly, might I add. Yeah. If right. I can share a quick story. <laughs> Go for it. I think you came up to me one year and you asked my advice on something. We were having a chat about something. And I won't go into those details, but I remember talking to you about it and then walking away from that conversation and only on thinking about it and reflecting about it later, admitting to you, <laughs> damn, I spoke a lot. I didn't let you get two words in and all I did was talk the whole time. And I'm like, it wasn't sensitive to what you were coming to me for. Yeah. And it was just me basically spitting what I thought to be knowledge and wisdom at you, <laughs> but without really embracing you properly and feeling what you were coming to me for. And that was a learning curve for me. I remember this actually. <laughs> I remember this. And the reason I remember it is because you came to me the next day and you said, to, and you apologized. Wow. And I thought, wow, this guy's going to be a good father. Like when the father can admit that he's made a mistake, that's powerful. That was huge. So yes, iron sharpens iron. That's right. <laughs> and that's what we're that's there awesome. in the seminary. Yeah. It is a brotherhood. Yeah. And it's quite a healthy one. Mm. Thank God. Yeah. That's awesome. My goodness. So 
how does this how, how was your first year because that's a completely different it's a lifestyle change yeah it's a massive change in first years it was probably one of the best years of my life honestly yeah. and not everyone experiences this um to be able to let go of the technology so for those not, who are not aware we we don't have our phones we don't have internet access for six of the seven days of the week so we have a day off on saturday and we we hand in our phones on the saturday night and we come back to the seminary and then we get them back friday night so you're forced to you know, spend time with your brothers in your, your year group and for us it was 12 and this 12 were really interesting in that we were just so different not only were we you know different in personality and yeah just personality we were also different in culture we had two nigerians we had one from china we had about four from vietnam and then even the the local guys we had different different kind of backgrounds one was your true blue classic aussie guy <laughs> um steven and none was a, a very lebanese man <laughs> <and> anthony <laughs> um, you know just very, a lot of different different personalities right and, and <laughs> you bring them all together <laughs> and in a way that's you know you have to spend time with each other it was difficult <laughs> and it was precisely because it was difficult we had to work through you know all these different things of all being thrown into this strange kind of environment at least strange at the time for us um and through it all our lord just kind of binds us together and you develop these really deep kind of fraternal um, friendships and bonds which you know i still have with a lot of these guys even though some of them have left the seminary um stevens in rome but it's probably my closest brother in the seminary um and you realize in in that year that you need other guys to be a good christian not even to be a good priest you need community and friendship yeah. if you're going to make it as a christian make it it's a strange phrase but if you're going <laughs> to you know become a saint that's better yeah yeah so it's beautiful man like i think one of the, the travesties of our world because one we're online two we're so global is we lose a sense of what real community is like look i'll be a little nostalgic here and i'm not saying we need to return to this but you think about a medieval kind of town where everyone's life revolves around the parish church is the tallest building and you only know those people in your parish and you have this real community where when you when you're in a jam you don't call up someone to make a from you don't know to help you out you just go to your neighbor the town's kind of whatever a craftsman and that particular trade and he helps you and that's the experience you kind of get in the seminary and it was my first real authentic experience of like real community and it was life-changing for me mm. and the staff were fantastic to me particularly my first year director father arthur givney um he, he's a quirky man. He won't mind me saying that. But one of the things he revealed to me is the human side of the priest. Uh, that he revealed a lot of his own experience as a priest before coming to the seminary to be a formator. And he just treated us like, in many respects, his sons. You know, have chats with him once every once a month. 
He's taking a lot of your classes. He takes you out. One of the great things with Father Arthur is you go out. You go out probably once a month um, or once every six weeks. You go like to a movie or you go out for dinner. The whole group, whole first year group. And Father Arthur used to eat humongous amounts of food. <laughs> so you go to like BL Burgers, you get three burgers. Wow. So what does that mean? We can also get three burgers. <laughs> <laughs> Seminary Spain. <laughs> they so, got the tab. Yeah. But it, this whole kind of communal living, it's not just purely like we're just praying together, yes. studying together. There's, it's your whole life is immersed in this. Yes. Yeah. And it's important to say also that just even in that quirky example of three burgers, you guys aren't gluttons. It was just a show of how balanced everything is. Mm -hmm. It's like you study hard, you're in prayer together, you're in formation together. And then there's a beautiful moment where you can all go out and enjoy yourselves. Yeah. And you enjoyed yourselves within reason. And the re and being there together as a group meant that, okay, we all had one another's backs. We're all watching out for one another, but we can have a good time. Yeah. You know, it isn't what people think it is. You know, like yeah. when you think of a priest or a religious sister, it's not they're in a chapel praying 12 hours a day. That's right. It's like it's a, there's a very human side to it all and that's not irresponsible eating. It's just we've had a big day, we're hungry, we're going to eat and it's celebratory and you're not doing that every night. No. You're not doing it every night. You're doing it, you know, within reason and that's what's beautifully balanced about it. Yeah. I just want to share an experience I had because I've seen this um, this human side of, <laughs> of um, seminarians and and priests now as well hmm. and um uh, and and this is something that a lot of people struggle with including myself when i was younger before i started to get into my faith and get to know priests um a little bit better is i just saw them as these grumpy people who just like gave up all this thing and whatever we've spoken about but yeah. it was never someone that i could just go and have a chat with even be mates with you know it was so um and there's even a comment on one of our videos that says um it's something along the lines of, is this a stitch up? Is Father Ben really a Catholic priest? <laughs> like something like that. You know? That's a bit you sad know? to be honest because it is. you need to see the side more often. Yeah. That's like, right. Sorry, yeah. keep going. No, no, th th you're, you're on point. That's, it is sad that, that that's something that's so new to people. Hmm. And um, I just want to share this experience. Uh, I, was, I went to um, the seminary on a Sunday for mass. So seminarians can bring a couple of guests in, um, family or friends to... Um, join them for mass and then lunch after so um, I had gone Father Ben was gracious enough to it was just Ben at the time <laughs> was gracious enough to invite me um, I think I think it might have been you who stood up and said this but um, uh, it was yeah you know what I'm talking okay cool so I'd gone on my birthday it was my birthday this right. um, uh, this day and uh, we were having lunch together and the seminarians stand up at a, at a point during lunch and they, they introduce the people they, uh, you, you would know this, I'm not, but anyway, I'm letting the people know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they stand up and introduce the guests that are with them. So Father Ben got up and he said, um, uh, firstly, it was just a, it was a nice experience to, to have lunch with the seminarians because I was just having a chat with them. I'm like, man, you guys are just people. Like it's, it's a, such a new thing to me. And then um, Father Ben got up and he said, uh, you know, please welcome Anthony or whatever. And it was my brother at the time that was with me. And um, he said, it's actually Anthony's birthday. So as a gift, 
uh, um, I'm handing him, it was in a joking way, by the way, just so people know. <laughs> he said, I'm handing him this application to the seminary. <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone went crazy. Like all the boys in there were like, yeah, screaming, <laughs> like smashing tables. And then they sang happy birthday for me. And I felt like I was back at school. Like I, I went to Lasso and Bankstown. Lasso boys were crazy. <laughs> and I felt like I was at school. People were smashing tables. They were going crazy standing up and like... <laughs> And it was just a cool experience because I thought these guys are just normal guys. Like, yeah. and it's so nice to see that human side where they, you know, they have, they have a laugh, they have a sense of humor. Um, they, they share similar interests, you know, and, and things like that. So that human side is just, yeah. it's something that priests, the younger generation of priests now, especially from my experience are really showing it. And it's so much easier uh, for us to, to come up and have a chat when we know that you're just another person, you're not someone who thinks you're above us, you know. And I think at the core of that, that's very well said, at the core of that is vulnerability. Yes, yeah. Is just, I want to show you who I am. Yeah. I just want to be authentic and genuine with you. I'm not putting on a face. Yeah. Because people know when you're putting something on. Yeah. yeah. Especially kids. Yeah, kids. Oh, kids. <laughs> oh, yeah. Kids. I walk into classrooms and if I'm not having the best day, kids will know. And I try and put on the smiley face and be all joyful and everything. But Father Ben, are you okay today? Oh. Like you get it. They see it. And so, so nice. just to be your authentic, genuine self is the way to connect with a person who's suffering. Yeah. You know, no one wants to see a bulletproof person walking around yes. pretending that there's something they're not. We're all broken people. This is the way I think I get away with a lot of what I preach about is because I accuse myself (laughs) first and foremost of being the biggest sinner and saying, come on, guys, we've got to get our acts together. Jesus loves us. He died for us. And look at the way we treat him. And I'm preaching to myself when I say that. So I think in that vulnerability, we're able to connect a lot better with people yeah, and, and it helps people see that the priest isn't up on the pedestal yes uh, and that you, i think that's a cultural thing that happened in decades past where they would hold the priest up high yeah. and it's like okay i get it but not necessarily healthy for a person that not might not be the most well-balanced person yeah that's on point oh so many things mm. that's why like if someone comes up to me and um, like I, I have, uh, honestly, it's it's a privilege of when I took up a, a bit of a leadership position at my parish, people automatically see you as someone that they can come to when they're struggling. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing, but uh, like I know that I can't help them with everything and mm-hmm. I can't help them the best way. So knowing that a priest, like someone, it's it's not necessarily... Um, that a priest is above them, but they they do hold this sense of I don't know wisdom. There's some life experience, and there are different life experiences that I know in priests. That when someone would come up to me, I would say, "Well, speak to them. Speak to this priest about this." Or um, like I wouldn't brush them off, but I would say t- to get better advice than what you're getting from me. You know, I know that Father Ben had a similar experience, so speak to Father Ben about this. I know that. Um, father ronnie had or father chris or something you know had a similar experience speak to them about this and you can say the same thing about christ like father when you were just 
talking. Christ went through everything. Like all, all the suffering that we can go through, we can't say we're going through this and Christ didn't. Like we're going through, my, my best friend betrayed me. Yeah, Christ experienced that too. Yeah, I got beaten. Well, Christ experienced that too. That's why he suffered so that we were, com we're comfortable enough to go to him and say, well, you've experienced this. Tell me how to do it. Yeah. Sorry, so many things going through my mind. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, that's true. I one of the points, brother, I, I want, wanted to add when you're talking about, when this both of you are talking about this human side of the priest. I think it's so essential to the priest, particularly because we call him father. Um, yeah. You, know, you think about our, think about our own fathers. They're normal. And they make mistakes, yeah. and that's all right. And that actually is very helpful in their vulnerability, where we can approach them. If we truly are going to say that a priest is the father of his parish, and his the, the parishioners are his children in a supernatural way. The parishioners must be all right with approaching them, like feeling comfortable with approaching their father. And it's particularly so for the priest because in a real way, he is an image of our heavenly father. And I think one of the great travesties is when the priest doesn't image the heavenly father, you know, there's a big father wound and we've got massive father wounds in our okay. culture. Yeah. We're always going to have a father wound to some extent because you know, our own fathers are not going to live up to the Heavenly Father, and that's fine. But that doesn't mean that you know, we just let it go even worse. You know? And this is why you know, a lot of the seminarians, a lot of your, your batch too, Father, are really passionate about you know, reclaiming the identity of the priest as father. Um, and taking on the responsibilities that come with it. Yeah. So I think one of the, the issues I've seen in some priests who are of a generation where you know, they didn't like to be called father. They wanted to be one of the boys or just one of the, yeah. one of the um, you know, parishioners. We're just like you. It's true, but it's also not true. You know, I think at the heart of this, there's this fear that if you're going to call me father, that means I have responsibilities to you. You know, I've got to treat you like I treat my children. And that's, that's a big responsibility. And we do have to you know, step up to the plate. Christ has already given us these graces in a particular way in the ordination, right? Because it's a sacrament. But, you know, believing that those graces are real and that God has made you participate has made you in a real way a participant in his fatherhood through his son that really owning that in a in a real humble way i think is is a very important path forward for for the church to heal a lot of the wounds not only within the church but the, the wounds that every single person are going through in our contemporary culture because there's an absence of fatherhood yeah yeah there's so much to unpack there for the sake of time. <laughs> I think How long have we been going for? we're good. We're good. We'll keep going. We'll keep right. going. Mate. The people will watch the people that want to watch. They will watch. <laughs> um, so you're, you're into the seminary now. You've, you've been five years there yeah. and it's forming you in a particular way mm. to conform your heart 
to Christ the Good Shepherd. Mm. And so you've only this year, it's nice and fresh. Yeah. You've had what we call a pastoral year where you've left the seminary environment and you've lived in a parish and you've been part of that parish community. You've lived with the priest. Talk to us about what that has done mm. in your development and your discernment to this point. Sure. So I guess in a nutshell, in four years in the seminary, you're starting to unpack, you know, what it is like to be a priest or what a good priest looks like. And, you know, that's awesome um, because you're studying, you're, you're praying in a very ordered way. Um, you're witnessing the example of good priests in our formators. And then you go out into the parish in this fifth year for an extended period. So we've gone out in, in, um, in the years prior, but only for about four to five weeks. Now, I've nearly been in the parish for, 12, for 11 months. And what it does is it concretizes all these realities that you've been studying in the past four years. You know, seeing the peop people you are called to serve and being part of their lives, that call that our Lord has placed, or the call that the Lord has placed in my heart from all eternity is being drawn out of me. You know, my desire to want to lay down my life for these particular people of the parish of St. Mary of the Cross, MacKillop, Warnerville, for the people of Broken Bay. You know, the call isn't just an abstract call. It, it manifests in a real way in a particular place. Um, just like the call to marriage manifests in a, in a woman you know. It's not just some random woman that you've never met before. Um, so to be able to, to experience that day in, day out, for 11 months has been life-changing for me in understanding how our Lord is calling me and what he's calling me to do. Um, and obviously with that, there's a lot of you know ups and downs. Like, look, the, the parish is a messy place. Just like everyone's family is complicated, the parish as a supernatural family is very complicated. And one of the things that I've had to come to terms to, especially with someone who's who naturally tends towards idealism and romanticism is being all right with the messiness. You know, being all right with, we don't have the perfect situation and that's fine. And I think the more I've come to terms with the fact that I myself am not perfect and I have, you know, wounds and vices that I'm still working on, the more I can be patient with the people around me the parish around me, my diocese, everyone really. And that's, it's a slow process of learning this. And I can talk really nicely about it right now, but day in, day out, it's a, it is a struggle at times. You know, one of the biggest challenges I faced this year was when my health wasn't too good for a few months and being removed from the people or not being able to say yes to certain things like teaching in the school or going to parishioners' houses, preparing talks, whatever it might be. And I think one of the, the, the greatest lessons our Lord has taught me this year is that at the heart of priest, the priesthood isn't so much what you can do in an active way, important as it is. It's your interior sacrifice and disposition to want to lay down your life for the people, offering these little sufferings that not many people can see, and small though they might be, offering that for the people. And that's where the fruitfulness will happen. And that can be difficult because you, you, you want to see the fruits in a tangible way. You want to see 
you know, how your children are flourishing. They're not really my children. I know this at the moment. Um, but it's beautiful. Your heart is being conformed yes. to that desire. Yes. And yes. I think this is particularly so for the priest because unlike the married man who has this tangible kind of interaction each day with his children and, and he tangibly sees them grow, the priest is often removed from seeing the fruits of his labors. And I think I'm so thankful for our Lord for slowly starting to introduce me to this, this dynamic. And I know he's going <laughs> to keep doing it to me, hope God willing, for the rest of my life. Um, but he's definitely introduced it to me in a real way this year. And I'm very grateful that it's happened now. Um, obviously, his timing is always perfect. And there's nothing in our life that ha happens by accident. Um, so yeah, that's that's definitely some of the fruits of the parish this Beautiful. year. And what were some of the things that you were encouraged by? You've, you know, this is a, a new experience for you. Yeah. What were you encouraged by in your time in the parish? Yeah, well, there's a lot of things, I guess. First thing I'll say about the priest I'm living with, Father Philip. Um, he's an Indian priest, but he's very different to me. I, I'm also Indian, born there. But obviously I've grown up here and father, father hasn't. So we've had to kind of learn how to, to work together. But one of the things that Father Philip has taught me is that you have to sacrifice. Like, it's all well and good yet yeah, in the interior life. Yes, you need to offer your suffering, your sacrifice. But actually, tangibly, you've got to make an effort sometimes. And we're talking about the Christian life earlier as being a battle. And he's taught me that. That, you know, you, you've got to make an effort of your will sometimes. You've got to cooperate with our Lord in ways that will stretch you. And that's good. So that's one thing. The other thing I'll say is the parishioners. When you go to each parish, um, there's always going to be you know, this diverse range of parishioners. Those coming to Mass, those not, and even those within Mass are you know, very different. But the way that they treat you and the things that they reveal to you, and you know this far better than me as a priest, because I'm sure it just gets even more intense, I guess, Um is very edifying. You know, their desire to want to grow in holiness or the, or just their their desire to, or their ability to trust you with things that are important to them. And you're like, wow, how unworthy am I to be standing here listening to you? Um, and that's, that's really powerful. That's really powerful. I'm so glad that also it's been a year where you get to develop the relationship with these parishioners. And it's going to be hard for me to leave because, you know, your heart really goes over to them yeah that was one of the things that i i often think about you know like i've had short stints in parishes mm. i had six months when i was a seminarian in a particular parish community i had eight months as a deacon at a particular parish and my heart was broken the day that i found out i was being moved on to another parish yeah. Yeah. can you imagine what a priest must feel if he's been at a place for six to twelve years yeah like that's also something that that's something of a sacrifice that you're being asked um, to live out. Yeah. And I think it's a reminder as much as on a very personal level, it sucks. Yeah. Um, it's a sacrifice you're being asked to live out knowing that this is Christ's work mm. and it's not your work. Yeah. You've been ordained by God to do this and you're a steward of the place that you're in. And through you, Christ works. Yeah. 
and that is hard to grasp sometimes. But so you're having that experience now. Have you left the parish yet? No, no, I'm going till Christmas. Okay, so that's going to be difficult. Yeah. But yeah, I think one of the things you know, I think my bishop is teaching me this slowly, Bishop Anthony Rendazzo, that is, is that you do have to have a chastity about you in that you're not possessive. Um, I think one of Pope Francis's best encyclicals has been Patris Cordae with the Father's Heart where he talks about St. Joseph. Mm. It's awesome. And he talks about St. Joseph being this chaste father. And what makes him chaste is that he's not possessive of our Lord. He's not possessive of our Lady. Yeah. He, ha he has this freedom in letting them be. He, that's not to say he doesn't guide them or protect them but he's willing to, to let them grow. Um, and I think, you know, every priest or every father in many respects is called to this. And slowly, slowly, I think I'm going to learn this lesson. Um, I learn it in small, very small ways with, you know, wanting to see that my words or my talk has some sort of impact on someone. You want to see the fruits or wanting people to come to me so that I can impart wisdom on them or give them advice. And you know, that gets taken away sometimes for good reason, I think, for me particularly. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, slowly, slowly, this is, I'm learning this to be, to be chaste and not being possessive. Is that why a diocesan priest is moved around often? Is that something to do with it? It wasn't traditionally the case. Okay. It wasn't traditionally the case that a priest was moved around. Bishops, I think, have their own particular policies. Oh, okay. I'm sure there's something in canon law that talks about it, but off the top of my head, I don't think I have it here today. Yeah. Well, one of the things I knew, it, this has changed in canon law, is that the parish priest, I think this was around in the ninth, uh, 20th, early 20th century at least, the parish priest had the right to stay in a parish for life. Like The bishop actually couldn't take that right from him. Now, now, maybe you end up with situations where you know the fit's not right and the parish is just being destroyed for whatever reason, not necessarily the priest's fault, but whatever. But I, I've been talking to you know seminarians about this. I don't know if I had a chat about this with you one time. But if you, if you take the analogy that the parish is a supernatural family, if you take that to its logical conclusion, then the father should stay, I think. I don't know how healthy it is I could be wrong, and you know, I, I don't want to be like sound some sort of like authority authority on this, but it seems wrong to me to chop and change your fathers. Like we don't do that in a natural family, and it seems a bit strange, particularly every six years, to be chopping and changing your supernatural father, particularly when he's just establishing his identity as father. I think off a place. So those are my thoughts. That's on that's, the on the parish. That's situation. a very yeah. a very profound thought. Yeah, and we're allowed to have these thoughts. We're allowed to think these things through and say, what is actually healthy mm. about this? Especially yeah. if people suffer father wounds. Yeah, that's particularly with that in mind as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean that's that's a very profound thought, Shane. And you know, it's not it's nothing to be dismissed. I don't think that's rather profound. Yeah. And this is, I think, one of the one of the hard things that we live out in our promise of obedience sometimes. Mm. 
is that if you are needed elsewhere, um, you take that hit and you get up and go and people will naturally ask questions. Was it us? Did Father leave because of us? Or did he want to leave? Did he request this leave? Or, And if it's not communicated properly, yeah. it can have great damage. Mm. Yeah, it can so cause true. great damage to a particular parish. Yeah. Um, and of course, we're all humans. No one handles it the right way. No one handles it perfectly. But that's something very, very profound and something that could be thought about. There's also something to be said for detachment as well. This is true, yeah. Um, I think that was one of the policies that in the seminary they almost make us change our rooms every year <laughs> so we don't start oh, hoarding wow. and building things up. Wow. You get a bit more stability as you become a senior. Mm. Um, but that's also very interesting as well. But I think what you've shared with us today in opening up your heart to talk about your your story, your upbringing, your discernment, to be as vulnerable as you have been, I think this is going to be a great episode to any of our young men and women at home that are thinking about their direction in life, that are thinking about what is missing, what is God calling me to. Yeah. And you've been an amazing witness to that today. So we thank you for your, for your generosity and your vulnerability in, in everything you've done there. And, and I'd ask our beautiful internet family at home, um, <laughs> please pray for this young man. Because he's in yeah. formation and he's he's over the hump now, as we say, and he's pleased God um, nearing ordination and the Diocese of Broken Bay are going to be blessed to have you in your many gifts and talents. Yeah. And I can already tell that you truly will lay your life down for the people of God. So um, Bishop Anthony Randazzo, if you're listening, this is my <laughs> official endorsement. <laughs> Um, and thank God for a guy like you doing what you're doing in the world. Yeah. So um, our prayers are with you, and we're going to conclude the show with a prayer, but we've got a couple more things to do. What are we doing is the question, and here is the answer. <clears throat> Shane, ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for Father Ben's big hit of the week. <laughs> and um, it's an honor, as always, when we have a guest um, with us. Um, but obviously a special honor, Shane, to have you on here with us for this um, particularly um, solid big hit nice. that we are about to see. But before we do that, our big hit... What did I just say? Our big hit sponsor, there we go, <laughs> is um, our big hit segment, I was meant to say, is proudly sponsored by and brought to you by Total Tours Clothing. And again, links are down below. Well done. <laughs> links are down below. Check them out. All the merch you need, the Catholic merchandise. Let's support our Catholic brothers and sisters. And especially, let's... Um, really just evangelize through not just our words and our actions but our clothing too so have a look totals to us clothing follow the links below well done that's anthony's <laughs> anthony's little dance yeah so all right let's have, get into it yeah our big hit let's get It'll into be it on the screen behind you shane um if you'd like you don't have to turn around <laughs> and let's play the clip please here we go oh 
Big hits. What was that that happened too quick? <laughs> oh. Was that Isaac Luke on James Maloney? It was. Oh, he folded him like an accordion. <laughs> Beautiful sound. Beautiful sound. That's a good one. <laughs> Beautiful sound. Wow. Oh, I love it. they get in under the ribs and they just <laughs> they crunch them. <laughs> they don't call him. Well, they didn't call him Bully Luke for no reason, mate. Bully Luke. Bully. Really? Yep. I don't actually know why they called him that, but if it oh. was for that reason, <laughs> yeah. they have good good reason. Wow. Well, there you go. Big hit segment of the week. Luke on Maloney. That's the beauty of this game of rugby league. Mm. Love it. Notice I didn't call it footy. Just out of respect for <laughs> you, you, Shane. Just out of respect for you. Well Shane, we want a memory of you being on this show. So now I'm going to invite you yep. to sign our canvas. Anthony's going to grab that. He'll throw it on that chair there. And an inspirational quote, a piece of scripture, whatever you've thought of. We're putting you on the spot here. But we'd I like you something. We'd like you to sign our canvas. Thanks, mate. Fulton Sheen said that every every man needs a woman in his life. And this is also true for the priest. So I've been inspired by your sponsor, Toda's Tuss. So that's what I'll write. Beautiful. Totally yours to our lady. Totally yours. Go for it, mate. Go for it. Anywhere, anywhere you want there. And we're praying also that your priesthood, Shane, is a Marian priesthood. Um, taking Our Lady by the hand, you can never go wrong because she always brings us closer to her son. And that is what Shane has written there today. So, Shane, thank you so much for being a guest on this show, for signing our canvas, for your generosity. And we're wishing you all the best moving forward. And I, please God, look forward to the day I get to call you a brother priest. Thank you very much, Father. God Thank you very you, much, mate. Anthony, too. It's been a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. And Fantastic. I look forward to being able, being able to call you Father. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Just to add my two cents in there. Amazing, amazing. So let's conclude with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, we thank you for this graced moment. We thank you for the gift of this day and of our lives. And we thank you mostly for the gift of your son. We pray especially for our special guest today, Shane. We ask that you continue to guide him through his seminary formation and that he might be a priest after the heart of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask all these prayers through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 The Lord be with you. And, and with, with your, your spirit. spirit. And may Almighty God bless you all gathered here and to all you watching at home and listening the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Remember, our Lord Jesus Christ says, You are the salt of the earth. What good is salt if it loses its taste? So stay salty. And don't be afraid to go against the grain. God bless. See you next time.